Hi, welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. Peter Singer is one of the foremost philosophers of our time, and I'm really happy he agreed to spend time with me in a fascinating dialogue for this week's podcast. I had the opportunity uh, a number of years ago, six or seven years ago, to appear with Peter on stage, and uh, that appearance changed the way I thought about the world. And so I was really happy to be able, able to have him back, specifically on the publication republication of his famous book, the 1975 book, Animal Liberation, has been rewritten substantially by Peter, and it's called Animal Liberation Now. And I want to spend time talking about that. Peter was one of the first people to make popular the idea that animals other than human beings have rights, particularly the rights not to suffer. And equal consideration of interests, as he called it, should be applied to the entire animal kingdom, if possible, and uh, and he lives by the, by the way he he, he speaks. He, he's a, a vegetarian and a vegan. And uh, I remember uh, the his discussions of factory farming, of chickens and meat. Even back then, years ago, was enough to make me rethink the way I ate. It took me a while, but I'm happy to say that now I'm a vegetarian. And again. He talks about the the in the, in the in the new book and in our discussion, the uh, the fact that factory farming hasn't really changed. And and uh, even though I live uh, surrounded by the sea, what I hadn't realized was that was that fishing of fish actually also not only causes trauma for the fish in, in an obvious way, but maybe more obvious when more than obvious when you think about factory farming of fish. But takes resources. For the example, the fact that salmon have to be fed fish, farmed salmon have to be fed fish that could otherwise feed other people. Um, and of course, there now the question of climate change has become very important. So we talked about uh, all of these things and more. Uh, I wanted to, as I do in Origins uh, podcast, to talk about Peter's origins and what what got him into philosophy in the first place. And he's a remarkable human being, and it's a wonderful discussion. He's passionate about these ideas and will confront some of the ideas you may have about, about animal rights, in fact, and, 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 and animal sentience. And I hope get you thinking at least about, about the way you deal with the world. Uh, in addition, of course, to his work on animal liberation, uh, he's written seminal books on effective altruism, on how to most effectively do good in the world. And again, he lives by that uh, giving a significant fraction of his own salary to effective charitable causes. And we talked about that discussion. I think listening to the discussion with Peter Singer may indeed change the way you think about the world for the better, if not at least get you asking questions about the world, which is really one of the points of the Origins podcast. So I really hope you enjoy our discussion together. And of course, you can watch it ad-free on our Substack site, Critical Mass, or you can wait and watch it on YouTube or listen to it on any of the standard uh, podcast listening sites. And I hope I'll be able to see some of you a few weeks from now, uh, or maybe a week from now by the time this appears in in uh, um, Los Angeles, in Orange County, for uh, our, my lecture there at the Bowers Museum, and, then, and two days later in San Diego. That's October 15th and October 17th. Go to the originsproject.org website if you want to get tickets. And uh, there's VIP tickets for a reception beforehand for both. I'll be signing some books. And uh, in San Diego, I'll be having a discussion with, uh, with Brian Keating 
for his podcast and my podcast. So if you live in the Southern California area or you feel like visiting at that time, I hope you'll come out then for our Origins events, all of which go to support the programming that we can do in the Origins Project. Thanks again, and with no further ado, Peter Singer. Well, Peter, thanks so much for uh, joining me. It's been a while since we've been together. I, I think the last—I can't remember the last time may have been in Mexico. I think, but but that I saw you. But but it's always a pleasure to spend time with you and to learn from you. So thanks for for spending the time today. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. It's uh, you know it's a great chance to to have the the new the new version of the of the book, which I which I want to talk about in, in many ways, uh, had an impact on my life has come out and it gave me a good chance to be able to re read the new version. And that's the great thing about doing the podcast. It, it, you know, it, I might've gotten it, but to read it in depth, it, it's, it motivated me. It's like a book club. You have to read it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, book clubs, you can sometimes finesse it, but I think if you're doing a podcast, at least in my opinion, I have to actually know what it says, but, um, uh, and I want to get to the. I want to focus for the most part on 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 the new version, which is remarkable. And and uh, uh, um, but I want to. Um, we spent time on st on stage together, uh, once a long a long a very pleasant conversation we had in front of a few thousand people once in 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 Phoenix. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't remember going into your origins as much as I, I do now. And since it's the origins podcast, I really like to know what got people to where they are. And so I want to spend the first part of this uh, conversation talking about that. I've looked at your bio and knew something, learned some things that I didn't know before. That your family come from Vienna, is that right? And uh, we're we're sort of refugees from Hitler. That's correct. Yes, my parents left uh, as soon as they could after Hitler took over Austria. And so well, they were very astute to leave when they did, but not all of your family left uh, in time. No, no. And it's it's a fairly common story that the younger generation left because they saw that they had no future. Um, you know, I don't think they were really contemplating that they would be murdered, but uh, economically they had no future. Uh, Jews could not own businesses. My mother had just qualified at the University of Vienna as a doctor. Oh. Uh, Jewish doctors could only treat Jewish patients. But the problem was about a third of the population of Vienna was Jewish. Um, sorry, about a third of the population of Vienna were doctors, and only about 10% of the population was Jewish. <laughs> so you we're not going to have that many patients. Yeah. So they decided to leave. But their parents, who were getting closer to the end of their careers, um, sort of procrastinated, I guess. They were eventually wanting to leave, but uh, sadly, they left it too late. Yeah, you, act, you. I didn't realize you. I don't know when in your life you did a bio of your maternal grandfather who died in in, in the concentration camps. Or... Yes, that's right. Um, that was published, uh, I think, two thousand and three or something like that. So about twenty years ago, uh, I'd been working on it for a, a few years. Actually, it was like a part time project while I was doing my more academic work to uh, read his to read his his books because he wrote a couple of books and many articles. Um, and read a lot of letters, uh, all in German, so I read it quite slowly, and uh, um, you know, then to write it up. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm impressed and admire that. I, 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 I thought my next book would be. I, I started. I, I took a year off school fifty years ago to work on a history book, and I have all the all the material. And I told myself this next book is going to be taking. I took the box out. 
but it's it's intimidating after a while. But it's nice to just have a labor of love like that, like you to, and for you to learn. I mean, for like 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 doing this podcast. If you're going to write a book, you it forces you to read all the things you might not have read otherwise. And and that's right. And I got to know my grandfather, who of course I'd never known in yeah. flesh because he was murdered before I die uh, before I was born. Um, but I did get to know him and his thought uh, to a, the greatest possible extent. Now, you're, I, you answered one question I was going to ask. Uh, when I read, I read about your father, but I didn't, I didn't read anything about your mother. I was going to ask what she did. So your mother was a doctor. Did she practice as a doctor in Australia when you moved there? Or was she moved there? Or? She did, yes. Um, she had to pass the Australian medical exams. It, it seems pretty incredible now, but the University of Melbourne and the, or Australia generally did not recognize a medical degree from the University of Vienna. Um, <laughs> so, so she had to do all the exams again um, in English, of course, but um, but she did manage to pass, and then she practiced for most of her life. So she was your father was oh, had a imported coffee or something tea. So he had he had an education at the university education as well, or no? Uh, he was educated at a school of commerce, um, business school in Vienna, uh, rather than at the main unit main campus of the university so let, let me that leads me to two questions which i sometimes ask people first of all was you're an academic and and, and i've always wondered what uh, i what makes what causes people to become academics i know in my case what did but but uh did your mother or father have a bigger influence on you in that regard uh, that's hard to say, really. Um, I think it was kind of assumed that I would go to university. Um, I had a sister six years older than me, and she had gone to university. Um, and so I think that was assumed. But certainly it was my mother's side of the family that was more academic. Um, my grandfather, the one who I wrote about, her father, uh, oh, had actually um, had, had studied uh, classics, uh, Greek and Latin, and um, then taught them, not at a university, but at uh, Vienna's most academic high school. Um, and so, you know, that was quite a high standard of teaching. And he also wrote articles, published articles um, related to his understanding of uh, ancient Greek and, and yeah. Latin. So, okay, so there was the academic... Um, Aspect. It wasn't as I've often said on this program. My mother wanted me to be a doctor. She was a Jewish mother and wanted me to be a doctor. But there wasn't any pressure on you to become a doctor or anything like that. No, no. But there's one other thing that I should mention actually, because I don't want to just have a male bias here, and that is that my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, uh -huh. also went to the University of Vienna. She was the 37th woman to graduate from the University of Vienna. Wow. And only the third woman to graduate in uh, maths and physics. Um, she did math so, and physics. Yeah, she she um, she she did study that, um, and um, she actually had an invitation after she graduated to go to Berlin to work with Max Planck, um, wow. but uh, she turned it down because she wanted to marry my grandfather. So oh. another case of a woman <laughs> sacrificing her uh, scientific career. For a man, um, not that she didn't have a career. She worked in as a, uh, in a in an association of banks and bankers doing mathematical work for them, I think, um, but uh, didn't have the scientific career. She could you have never managed. know. She might have been happier. You never know. Oh, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, but that that leads me naturally to the next question. I was going to say with your mother as a doctor and now with her mother as a math and physicist, 
Why didn't you become a scientist? I always wonder why people don't become scientists. <laughs> you know, we had to make a choice at high school at that time. Um, made a choice at, um, uh, at about in the third last year of high school. So you specialize for your last two years of high school. Sure. Either you're going to do maths and sciences or you were going to do basically humanities subject. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd done fine at maths and, and the sciences, but uh, I really enjoyed the others more and I enjoyed writing. Uh, and maybe I got that a bit from my father because though my father was not educated in that way. He was really interested in history. We had, had quite a library of history books. He was often talking about uh, history. Um, he also was quite gifted for languages, he, as well as, of course, German and English. He uh, knew French quite well. So, you know, maybe there was a bit of that in me in some way as well. You know, you all, you, you preview the questions that I'm going, that I, that I'm going to ask next. You naturally lead to them. Cause I was going to ask about reading. That's the other thing I'm always interested in. Um, uh, when you started reading, who influenced your reading? And I guess it was your father in that case more. And when you were younger, you read history or did you, did you read a lot of fiction or did you read, um, what did you read? What got you interested in reading? Um, well, I mean, depending how young I was, I read some uh, bad boys fiction, I guess. Good. Uh, which would now be considered horrendously racist. Yeah. Um, you know, tales of, of brave white men exploring Australia, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, But then I did read quite a bit of history. At some point, I actually read more or less from cover to cover uh, Winston Churchill's six-volume history of the Second World War. Wow. Um, so I did get quite absorbed in that. Of course, the, the Second World War was fairly close at that stage, growing yeah. up in the fifties, and uh, and obviously it had been crucial to my family, and uh, I felt that strongly. So I read that, um, but I also read as a teenager um, Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, uh, which was the first philosophy work that I read, and I enjoyed his clear style, and I enjoyed explanations of, of ideas that were quite new to me. Uh, so yeah, they were. I was going to. Well, we're going to ask, obviously, how you end up doing philosophy. But you, so Churchill, so he deserved the award he won for that for that book. You think? Yeah, I thought he was an excellent writer. Um, yeah, yeah. he was an excellent good. speaker, and it's um, there aren't many pri Nobel prizes or whatever that have gone for for nonfiction books. So there's there's very few. And, yeah. and um, uh, I admit I haven't read it that. I now now I think I maybe should turn to it because I do love history. Um, but you did study history. You studied law. You studied as an undergraduate. Well, before, so in high school, you had to specialize. You chose the humanities aspect the last for the last three years. Um, when did you read Bertrand Russell? Was you still in high school? Yes, I was still in high school. Yeah. Okay, and that I assume that piqued your interest in philosophy. That was that the initial philosopher that you read that sort of not not Aristotle or any of the others. <laughs> That's right. Uh, he was definitely the first philosopher I read. Um, and uh, yes, it did pique my interest, but so too did my uh, older sister's boyfriend, who had studied a bit of philosophy and uh, talked to me about it. And so I think he was a decisive factor in my deciding to not only study uh, uh, law, which was going to be my profession, and which in Australia, as in Britain, you started immediately as an undergraduate, um, but also doing history for interest and then saying, okay, well, I can combine history and philosophy for the interest side of things. Yeah, the new, the new, the new catch-all degree in the States that my actually my stepdaughter did, and everyone seems, and in England too, I think it's 
PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics. I think yeah. sort of that. Yeah, I, I, I taught, taught students in that in a couple of years when I taught at Oxford. Yeah, well, there's that the uh so you added philosophy, but you planned to be a lawyer. Is that what you'd planned? I did plan to be a lawyer. Um I never imagined that I could make a living as a philosopher, and uh, you know, I thought I do need to make a living. Um and it was only rather gradually that I let that slip. I mean, when I I, I'd, I'd finished my my BA and um, done well in that before I'd quite finished the law degree. Uh, and I was offered a, a graduate scholarship to go on and, and write a, a master's degree in philosophy. And so I went to the law faculty and said, um, can I postpone finishing my law degree? Uh, and they said, sure, yes, just come back when you've uh, finished your MA. But then when I finished my MA, I got offered another scholarship to go to Oxford. So I postponed again. There's still time. <laughs> and, and, okay. But but the, it's interesting that we were going to be a lawyer because, again, my my brother became a lawyer. And my, for my parents, it was important that we become professionals. They didn't go to university. But mm. uh, but there was no pressure to you to be a professional in that sense. It was just your view that, well, it's pretty hard to earn a living hanging a shingle up saying philosopher, you know, inquiry. Yeah, I had, I had no idea about that. And I hadn't really thought of being an academic at that point. Now, you... Uh, this could be an error in in one of your bios, and I think in I forget which one. It, it, did you do a second BA at Oxford? As, no, after I did a BA called a Bachelor of Philosophy. Um, it's strictly, I mean, it's it's weird, you know, but Oxford is weird in many ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh it's that it's actually it it is a postgraduate degree. You can't do it as an undergraduate, oh. and yet it's it's called a Bachelor of Philosophy. Um, it's a two-year graduate degree, so it's a little shorter than doing a Doctor of Philosophy. It has some courses involved, which the Oxford uh, Doctorate had uh, no courses. It was simply a thesis degree. Um, and you did write a thesis, but the thesis was a shorter one than the Oxford DPhil. So um, when I asked people in my philosophy department in Melbourne what degree I should do, they recommended the DPhil because they said it's broader than doing the, the doctorate. And um, and we'll still regard it as a qualification if you want to get a job and come back here. Um, and they did, you know. So I, I did come back with only a uh, a BPhil um, and, of course, the master's and bachelor's degree. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't have a doctorate was not a barrier to getting an, an academic job at that, at that time. Interesting. So you didn't you never got the doctorate at, at, at Oxford. OK, that's interesting. That's right. Yeah. And the, the but the thesis you wrote the one that I think you published this book was a thesis you wrote while at in in Australia, right? Why should I be moral or something like that? And and uh, I wrote why should I be moral in Australia, but I didn't really publish that as a book, although it's figured in other books. I wrote a book called How Are We to Live, yeah. which is along that theme, but that came out you know twenty more than twenty years yeah, later, much later. I I know yeah. the book, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so and, that's great. You yeah. Have a dog so the, the, Oxford, the Oxford philosophy thesis was published in a slightly expanded form. Uh, it's called Democracy and Disobedience. Oh, that's right. Democracy. It was about, um, it was about whether there's uh, a right to civil disobedience in a democracy. Oh, okay. Which is re which becomes relevant in a way to animal liberation at some level. Um, which we'll get. Well, to. Well, that's true. But at the time, I was thinking more of the Vietnam War. Yeah, um, sure. Which is a yeah, and 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 uh, I was. Re I mean, how could one? Uh, well, I was going to say, how could not one not protest against Vietnam War? I guess a lot of people didn't. My 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 friend Noam Chomsky tells me most academics didn't, but he. 
but um did, were you active in 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 the uk or in australia i guess it would have been i was more active in australia as an undergraduate when doing my masters i actually was the leader of a group called uh um melbourne university students against conscription um or campaign against conscription i think it was um so that was after after the the draft was introduced in australia it was um specifically campaigning against that um, and that was introduced in order to provide troops to serve alongside our american allies in vietnam i didn't realize there was conscription in australia too huh okay in vietnam yeah, so yeah and that obviously was a good political rallying point i mean i was against the war even without that of course yeah. but um but in terms of rallying people who didn't want to serve and whose parents didn't want their children to serve, um, that was a strong point. Okay, well, so so civil disobedience, and then, and then, it, a very important um, meeting, which I've heard you talk about. It. Actually, you talk, mentioned it briefly in Animal Liberation, and I read more about it with a fellow student. Um, I was very pleased to see that student is now. I don't know if he still is, but became a professor at Cape Breton University, which is not too far away from where I live. And uh, another reason for you to come visit. If you well, that was actually the reason I visited Prince Edward Island the first time, as I mentioned, uh, when we were talking before we started uh, uh, recording. Um, I went to visit him and his wife, Mary, in uh, Sydney, Cape Breton, um, with my wife and, and our very small child, um, to see them again, because we'd been really close at Oxford. and. Uh, they were living there and then we decided we would see a bit more of Canada. So we hired a car and uh, drove from Cape Breton to Montreal, oh. stopping um, at a few places on the way. And uh, Prince Edward Island was one of them. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm glad you've been there. I hope you'll, as I said before, we began recording. I hope you'll come back. But but his he had a profound effect on you. Do you so why don't you review that uh, briefly for, for, for the listeners? He had an extremely profound uh, effect on me, and it was just an accidental meeting. He he, he was a fellow graduate student at Oxford, um, and there was a class that we attended together. But the class had nothing to do with with animals. Um, and but after the class, I, I'd asked a question at one particular session, and after the class, he he asked me whether I'd been satisfied with the answer that had been given. Um, and we talked about that a little and the conversation started to get into deeper issues. And, and he said, why don't we have lunch? Because the class finished just before lunch. Uh, you can come back to my college and we can continue the conversation. So he in, invited me to, to Balliol College for lunch. And uh, we were offered a choice of two dishes. There was a hot dish, which was uh, spaghetti, and there was a salad plate. And the spaghetti had a kind of nondescript red brown sauce on top of it and Richard said um, can you tell me if there's meat in the sauce and when he was told there was he took the salad plate um, so I took the, uh, the spaghetti and we sat down we ate our lunches and we finished the conversation that we'd been having about the class um, and then I asked him because it was really unusual in uh, this is 1970 uh, to meet somebody who had a problem with with eating meat and he didn't seem to be a Hindu or anything like that. Um, so I said, basically, you know, why did you ask that question about the meat? Do you have a problem with eating meat? Um, and I wasn't sure what to expect. I thought maybe he would think it was bad for his health. There were some people around like that then, um, though not many. 
Uh, I thought maybe he's going to be a, a complete pacifist, you know, who says just killing is wrong, full stop. I, mm -hmm. um, uh, but instead he said something much simpler. He said, I don't think it's it's right to treat animals uh, in the way that animals are treated to be made into our food. And that surprised me because I thought that animals have good lives on farms. I thought they were all outside in the fields, grazing away happily. Mm -hmm. Of course, then they get rounded up and trucked off to slaughter. They have one terrible day in their life. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, is, it, is that so bad? But but he said, no, that's not true anymore. Uh, many animals are indoors now. They're very crowded uh, or perhaps they're in feedlots. Um and, uh, you know, whatever can be done to make it cheaper to produce their meat is done. So really, we're doing all sorts of bad things to give them pretty horrible lives. Um, and I, I was surprised by that. I wanted to learn more. Uh, he recommended the one book that I think existed then on that subject, a book by Ruth Harrison called Animal Machines. And um, I read that and I found that very convincing, too. Um and so I joined Richard and a couple of other friends that he knew in Oxford um, who were vegetarians. Oh, wow. And right then, and, and then, and it was, and right then you became vegetarian and, and you remained that. You never, you never became, you never had withdrawal symptoms or anything like that. <clears throat> no, I never had withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say it was not instant. I should mention I was already married by then. So I obviously went home and told my wife about this conversation that I'd had and then, she looked at the book by Ruth Harrison as well. So it was a, it was a joint decision. I do know some families where one is one spouse is a vegetarian, the other isn't, but it's got to be hard. I honestly think I probably could not have done it at that stage because, you know, you, you, you were going to make yourself into a kind of crank in, in many people's eyes. Yeah, and if yeah. my wife had thought that too and not yeah. supported me, it would have been too yeah, hard for I me. I understand that. Yeah, no, no, it's great that you both, well, joint decision, and we'll talk I'm similar here. Um, so, and we'll get to the, uh, uh, but your development of philosophy and your own philosophy, when, and, I, and in the, I want to talk about the context of animal liberation, comes from the idea, and I don't know if this verbiage is yours, or, you know, the equal consideration of interests, um, which is a central sort of term and a central idea that really yeah. forms the basis of, of, of animal liberation and, and your views about that and many other things. Yeah. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Or, yes. Or? Um, and that is not, I didn't in, you know, put those words together, the equal consideration of interests. Um, I took them from an article written by uh, the philosopher Stanley Benn, uh, but um, he was not writing about animals. He was writing about what is the basis for equality among humans. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think he was the only one to use that phrase either. I'm, I'm not absolutely sure of that, but um, but he wrote a quite a prominent article. And and this was a, a a puzzle that philosophers were talking about at that time. So we say that all humans are equal, but what exactly do we mean by that? Because it's obvious that humans differ in you know how tall they are, how strong they are. Um, they differ in regard to to sex. Um, they differ in regard to abilities, you know, uh, whatever it might be, academic uh, abilities, musical abilities, sporting abilities. Um, so what does it mean to say they're equal? And uh, one of the answers that seemed to me to be a reasonably plausible answer to that was to say, well, they're all entitled to have their interests equally considered. So um, 
know, we all we have interests in living our lives well and having a good life and not suffering pain and misery. Um, and there's no reason why those who are of our race or or of our sex or any other of those groups that you might think why why their interests should count more than than those of of other races, sexes, and, and different groups, nationalities. So fundamentally. Humans are all entitled to have their interests given equal consideration. And I agree with that. And I think I still agree with that. But um, why does this stop at the boundary of our species? That was the question that uh, Ben didn't ask. And when I looked at other philosophers who talked about equality and come up with other answers, similar ones, generally, they didn't ask that question either. Which was Which is the basis of what you would call... Uh, you know, was central to the book again. The the idea of speciesism, the fact that people don't even ask that question, is the speciesist. I guess is the way to say it. Is is uh, um, is the assumption that one doesn't even have to ask the question. That's right. That's right. It, it, there is just that completely unspoken assumption. And uh, whereas, if somebody made it on the basis of race or sex, we would think that's outrageous. Mm -hmm. um, but why don't we think that about species? Well. Maybe because we are in the same situation as the most uh, blatant racists in a racist society would have been when they didn't even question the idea that you don't have to give equality to blacks. Exactly. And and your point, and we'll get to it probably later, is that if if one of the that one of the purposes of philosophy is to cause us to question things that we wouldn't normally question, that are accepted assumptions without thinking that 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 if that's the purpose of philosophy, it's kind of disappointing that philosophers on the whole had not had fallen into the trap of of not even asking that question. Yes, it is disappointing, and of course, it does make us wonder about you know what is it that we're blind about today that we're not seeing. Yeah. Um, well, now we'll get. We're almost you know this is natural segue to 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 getting to the details of the book, but I do want to. I mean, you're, the context of the book too, and what you talk about. The other thing that at least I know you for, and I'm not a philosopher, although I've read a bunch of your books. Um, well, you, is the basis of your philosophy, what one would say, is utilitarianism. Is that right? Is That's that, right. Yeah. And you want yeah. to describe that again for people? sort of? Sure. Uh, so utilitarianism is an ethical view, which firstly says that actions are right or wrong in accordance with their consequences. So if their consequences on the whole are good, all things considered, then the actions are right. And if the consequences are bad, all things considered, the actions are wrong. Um, and that's means that's that's a description of a general family of theories that we now call consequentialism for yeah. obvious reasons. Um, and it's different from those theories that say, no, here's an absolute rule. You must never tell a lie, no matter what the consequences of telling a lie, let's say. Um, but uh, utilitarianism is one form of consequentialism. It's the form that says the consequences that matter are consequences for well-being, essentially for happiness and avoidance of its opposite, pain or suffering. So um, what we the consequences we want to judge actions as right or wrong by are have they maximised the surplus of happiness over misery, or if there is no such surplus, minimized the surplus of misery over happiness. 
Now, is that, well, I want to get to it, but that when one starts talking about maximizing and minimizing, it does bring up the idea of effective altruism. So maybe we, we'll, let, we'll get there in a second, I guess. But but um, that does mean, and you already alluded to this, that, that, that and something which, of course, I happen to agree with, that this idea of absolute moral or absolute ethics doesn't make sense. Because in some cases, at some times and some places, the consequences of a behavior can be good, and at other times, the consequences of the same behavior can be bad, which means that there's that behavior or that attitude or whatever you want to call it is not absolutely morally or ethically reprehensible, but it depends on the circumstances. Yeah, well, that's certainly my view and the utilitarian view, but there are some uh, ethicists who've denied that, who've said, um, no, even, you know, there's this Latin saying, you know, do justice though the heavens fall, right? Or, or the, the world perishes. Now, to me, that's that's crazy. I mean, it's like saying, well, <clears throat> you know, it would be worth waging a nuclear war if otherwise um, somebody would unjustly benefit. Um, uh, that's yeah. that's it, crazy. Yeah, um, I, I'm obviously, I'm not sympathetic to it too. And as a scientist, I'm not sympathetic to it, which is surprises some people because you know, physics, some people think of as absolute laws, and it's absolutely not the case. One of the greatest, most important development in physics in the last 50 or 60 years is the realization that there's no absolute truths in science. There, there's, you know, it's science can prove what's absolutely false, but not what's absolutely true. And, and even the laws of physics evolve. And, and there's no, there's no theory, no, even our best theories, it applies at all, in every case in the universe. That's a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. But it's, so, I mean, it meshes with certainly it, it, my personal view of, you know, looking at history and anthropology and other things. Whenever you, if you, I, I remember when I was younger, it really hit me that some things I had just naturally taken for granted as being good, I could see in certain, I learned in certain times in history and in certain societies were not viewed that way at all. And it was, and it's, a, it opened up my eyes to the notion that maybe, um, Maybe uh, well, I think I'm. I, I don't. You know, I'm not sophisticated enough to call myself a consequentialist, perhaps utilitarian. But, but it's I think the basis of my own view of the world. But, right. but I did read somewhere that you that you that the version of utilitarianism you, you, that you're associated with is called hedonistic, which really broke. I never thought of you as a hedonist, but, but, but. Well, but that's explain the popular, that. The, the popular sense of hedonist means that I'm, you know enjoying I'm, I'm lying out in the sun with a glass of wine and yeah. uh, uh whatever um so that's an egoistic hedonist i suppose somebody yeah. who's only thinking about their own pleasure but uh, utilitarians are universal hedonists that is uh they're thinking about the pleasure of everyone um and in fact and, and this is an interesting point that utilitarians actually have consistently talked about the 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 pleasure and pain of of non-human animals matters too um you know you have to look for it especially in bentham uh the founder of the english school of utilitarians um there's only a few brief notes but there is a very important footnote in in one of his works that shows that he was very clearly aware of this um but uh you know, didn't push it he was too far ahead of his time there were there were no laws in england in his uh, at that stage to actually prevent people being cruel to animals at all Okay. Well, then, and then one moved, okay. And, and when one talks about utilitarianism, the, the, I'd never heard of the term effective altruism until I learned it from you. I don't, again, I think if I'm right in reading, I think in this book or some other book that you got it from some students 
from uh, it was actually yes um there was a group of students in oxford um in the about 2008 or 2009 somewhere on that who um had formed this group uh they had to some extent been inspired by one of my uh writings um and they thought that they should do more good um and they were particularly at that stage focused on helping people in extreme poverty which is an issue i'd written about as well um and they wanted a name for their group and they tossed around a dozen or so names um and eventually they decided to vote on them and the name that came out on top was effective altruism so uh yeah that was a collective decision i, I don't know whether one of them particularly proposed that or argued for it but it, it's it was a collective decision that's caught on um but you want to want to describe that sort of the the another difference but the it obviously stems from consequentialism but but you want to explain what what, what one means by effective altruism yeah sure so uh altruism is most people understand it's it's like doing good for others mm -hmm. um and most people think that that's a nice idea but not very many people think about the importance of making your doing good for others as effective as you can um when people give to charity for example um they often give very impulsively they see a picture of a smiling child and they think oh that's a good charity I'll donate to them or some friend is giving to them um but it makes a huge difference uh which charity you donate to Let, let's just stay with the example of doing being altruistic by donating to a charity um it makes a huge difference and I'm not talking about charities that are frauds there's a very small number of them that of course are complete waste of money but even among charities that you think of as, as good that are doing quite a good purpose um there can be other charities that might do hundreds of times as much good with with your donation uh, and people find that hard to believe but so let me give you an example um a good charity that most people would accept as a good charity is one that trains guide dogs to help people who are blind right mm -hmm. it's somebody who's blind can get around better with a guide dog um doesn't seem to you know the guide dog seems to enjoy the work in a sense so it's a nice thing to do but it's pretty expensive because it takes a lot of skilled training to train the guide dog and you have to then train the uh the blind person to be with the guy the dog so roughly it costs you forty thousand dollars um us to to train a guide dog now what else could you do with that well um this is something i owe to toby ord who's one of the pioneers of uh, one of these students i was mentioning at oxford in, in the early 2000s um he looked around for for other things he could do and he found that um at that time anyway there was an article that said that for $25 you could prevent someone becoming blind by treating trachoma which is the major cause of preventable blindness it's a main cause of blindness in hot dusty countries without a lot of hygiene so think North Africa for example um and yet it's very easy to prevent so you know think of the difference between you know helping one blind person and preventing someone becoming blind it's obviously better to prevent someone becoming blind at all and then think of the cost difference right $25 versus 40,000 now it's pretty easy to see that there's actually more than a thousand fold uh good done in donating to the nonprofit that treats trachoma than in the nonprofit that trains guide dogs 
you know, well, perhaps, you know, perhaps the the cost of that treating to chrome has gone up now. Maybe the lower hanging fruit has been picked. Maybe it's a hundred dollars, but you know, it's still a hundred dollars compared to forty thousand. It's still four hundred times uh, as much. So, um, yeah, uh, this group really, you know, went through that, worked that out, and decided they needed to publicize it. Um, and uh, uh, Toby Ord set up a group called Giving What We Can to publicize that, and. Uh, emphasize the importance of actually doing some research into what are the best ways to do good. And I think that's the biggest contribution that the effective altruism movement has made. It, it does popularize the idea of living to some extent altruistically. It doesn't say you have to be a saint, but um, yes, having altruism as part of one of, you know, part of your goals of life. Um, but then it emphasized the importance of doing the research or now you can look up the research online um, and finding the most effective ways to be an altruist. Well, yeah, and you promoted too in your books. You wrote at least one or two books about. Yeah, I have a book called "The Most Good You Can Do." The most is, good you can do. I remember that. And yeah. and well, first before we get there, I mean, that research is useful to the extent it, it people learn about it. So, is there a place people can go? There must be a website you can give. Uh, there are a couple. And uh, there's actually another book that I wrote called The Life You Can Save, which is specifically about global poverty. Yeah. Um, and uh, that led to an organization being founded. Uh, uh, a guy approached me and said, you know, this book ought to be turned into an organization. And <laughs> I'd, I'd put up a website about it, but that's about all I got to do. <laughs> um, and he said, I volunteered to do it. He was somebody who'd had a, a guy called Charlie Bresley, who'd had a career in, in men's retailing, uh, been quite successful in a national men's clothing chain, um, and uh, um, but decided that really didn't satisfy him. That wasn't really what he wanted to do with his life. So he took early retirement from that and uh, and volunteered to set up this organization, The Life You Can Save, which um, does some research of its own and aggregates uh, other research. And you can go to thelifeyoucansave.org and you can find a curated list of uh, 20 plus organizations uh, helping people in extreme poverty that have been assessed for being highly effective in what they do. Well, that's great. I wanted to get that information out and that's, that's great. Um, but you know, but you've done, there's, so it sounds like, it sounds like it's something anyone, everyone could agree with and want to do, but you've gone further. And I do want to mention, if you're suggesting something, and I think most people find a lot harder to do, although I, I understand that you do it, which is not just maximum good you can do, but the fact that the maximum good you can do involves a significant fraction of your own income. If you're if you're living in you know relatively materially successful, it's not just you know doing the one percent or the ten percent, but but forty or fifty or sixty percent. You know, and and you to motivate that you it's again as far as I know you introduce this analogy of a drowning child. But maybe, maybe why don't you why don't you give it here? I'll give you a chance. Yeah, right. Yes, this this was the article that uh, influenced people, uh, the, the students I mentioned uh, in yeah. forming the effective altruism movement. Um, so I was trying to argue that um, people who are comfortably off uh, ought to be doing something to help people in extreme poverty, um, particularly uh, you know emphasizing that when people are in extreme poverty they die or their children particularly die disproportionately. And, and so to, you know, to meet the sort of objection where people would say, well, I'm not responsible for the fact that these children in 
wherever they are in low-income countries are dying. That's nothing to do with me. So, so why why do I have to help them? Um, I ask people to imagine that they're walking across a park that has a shallow pond in it, um, and they see, to their surprise, that a small child seems to have fallen into the pond and is floundering around, um, looks like it's about to drown, and there's nobody there looking after the child, no parents, no babysitter, no lifeguard. Um, so what do you do, right? Well, you the first thing you think is I'd better run and jump into the pond and pull the child out. No danger to me because I, I know that this pond is quite shallow. But your second not so nice thought is, oh, but I put on my best clothes today because I'm going somewhere I need to impress people and I don't have time to get them off and they're going to get ruined. Um, and then you, uh, I, you know, stop and think at that point. Now, suppose that you decided you weren't going to ruin your clothes and you walked on. What would you think of that person? Um, and most people would, I hope, will say, and I'm sure you would, uh, that would be a horrible thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so once I've got you saying that would be a horrible thing to do, um, then you're accepting that to save a child's life, you ought to give up something. At least you ought to, you know, be prepared to ruin those expensive shoes um, and uh, save the child. And so then the question is, well, where does this stop, right? Um, and now the, the drowning child example gets a little crazy, but you imagine that there's more children. You have to keep saving them each time you walk past the pond or whatever. Um, so, so it is hard to say where the limit is, um, and I don't really claim uh, now to say that I know where the limit is or that I live up to an ideal limit. Um, I think I would probably have to do a lot more sacrificing, a lot more giving than I do to really be at a limit where I could say, you know, there's nowhere further that I ought to go. But but I think if you're comfortably off um, as I am, then you do need to give something quite substantial. I don't think it's it's enough to just give um, small token donations uh, because it's not really going to make your life uh, into something just terrible. Um, it's not going to make nearly as big a difference to your life as what you can donate is going to make to the lives of the people who will benefit from it. Assuming, of course, as we've been saying, that you do give to a, an organization that will use your donation effectively. Yeah, no, I, and, and I know, and I know personally, uh, I do know you do, you do a lot. And, and, uh, and that leads me to the last question before we specifically get to animal liberation, because this, and this is relevant the last question I'll talk about later on about what we can do. But one of the things when you think about, I mean, the drowning child analogy is one, one way of thinking about it, but you've, but you have talked or written about something very important, which is the evolutionary basis of altruism. And that, and that, understanding the evolutionary base of altruism, if you're trying to think how to get people to lead good lives or, or act altruistically or do more than they do. And it's always a challenge to try and figure out how to do it. And, and, um, and one way is to think about what, what's led to altruism in the first place and how you can utilize the evolutionary basis of altruism as a way to help convince people to act. I wonder if you want to talk about that. Is it basically a guide for, for using understanding the evolutionary base of altruism as a guide for influencing public policy, for example, something that makes, yeah. So anyway, yeah. I think I've, yeah, enough. 
So, I mean, there's a lot to be said about um, evolution, altruism, and, and ethics. Uh, um, and first, maybe uh, let me say something about what I think is the, the wrong way to use evolution. And that's that's the way that was used by social Darwinists um, mm -hmm. in the 20th century, I guess, particularly, when, um, you know, they they read Darwin, they, they accepted, and they said, okay, so therefore... Um, you know, life is simply a, a struggle for survival and we must let the weak fall by the wayside and we must uh, champion the strong so that they survive. Um, but, you know, there's, there's that kind of moral lesson. You know, Dow, uh, the evolutionary theory is not teaching you a moral lesson. It's telling you how it is that we got here. Um, yeah. And now we are here. And the question is, what ought we to do? Now, it's true that if you understand evolution, um, you might question whether altruism is possible at all, because you might say, well, didn't evolution make us selfish um, in terms of firstly ensuring our own survival? Mm -hmm. And and secondly, as say, Richard Dawkins and others would teach us, um, extending that to our kin and those who carry the same genes as we do, so that uh, you know, that favors the survival of those genes. Uh, and that that may be true, and that may be consistent with the forms of altruism that are widely shared. So, uh, altruism for your kin, particularly the closer children, um, altruism also for those you're in a close and reciprocal relationship with, because that can benefit you. So, your friends, basically, uh, as well as them, um, and uh, what we might call universal altruism is rarer. Um, mm -hmm. But that's but it but it does exist and it's interesting that it exists because yeah. you know, for example you know people do help strangers um, people give blood donate blood which is going to go to strangers not really going to benefit them uh, and the effective altruism movement um, basically shows a lot of people act altruistically to strangers in a variety of ways so a further question then was how does how does that happen and there are different answers that could be given. I've talked to Richard Dawkins about it. Um, he says it's a kind of spandrel, you know, it's sort of uh, like the peacock's tail in some way. It's uh, <laughs> something that just happens and gets selected for in a strange way. And um, I don't find that entirely convincing. Um, my view is that it has to do with the fact that we also evolved to be able to reason. Um, again, you know, clearly for it benefited us to be able to reason and helped us to survive. But but I see reason, I, I use the metaphor of a reason being like a, an escalator. So um, you, once you start reasoning, you can't necessarily just jump off at any point or you can try, but it's sort of there's this cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Um, so once we reason, we can we understand that strangers are very like us, that they suffer like we do. And then we understand just what I was saying before that, well, you know, here am I spending a lot of money on something that I don't really need and that isn't going to make me you know, transform my life in a wonderful way permanently. Um, uh, and with that amount of money, I could make a much bigger difference to the lives of other people. Um, and so that starts to say, well, you know, they do matter just as I matter. So why not do that? So, you know, my explanation, or I should say partial explanation, because I'm sure it's not the only factor, um, is that our ability to reason helps us to reach the ethical judgment that this is a good thing to do, that um, helping others, even if they're strangers, even if they're not our, you know, our friends, um, 
is an ethical thing to do. Excellent. Okay. Well, now and and then. Uh, well, I was going to get to preference voting, but I think I've been, I've, I've, we've, we've, we've waited long enough to get to the heart of the matter, which is not just, you know, how to help your friends and and neighbors and other people, but how to help animals and to treat animals' interests and as as a, as a, as equal uh, to our own in the sense that they have equal. We have to consider their interests equally. So Animal Liberation was written in 1975. Um, and I have to say, you know, I'm going to try and be a devil's advocate in some of this because I want to try and provoke so, to give you the opportunity to answer questions. Some things I, 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 I'm intrigued by and may not agree with. But anyway, but on the whole, I do. And, and therefore, it's hard to become a devil's advocate. It has a profound effect in my own life, I have to say, because I will say this. And people always say I make it about me, but anyway, um, it. Uh, I remember when my daughter was about seven, we were in in Aspen. I was doing a book signing at a bookstore called the Explore Bookstore there, which is, was was one of my favorite bookstores. Catherine Thalberg, you probably know them, maybe. Catherine Thalberg. I was and, there actually, but wasn't there, wasn't there a bookstore? Wasn't there a bookstore called the Tattered Page or something like that? No, that's or, in Denver, Tattered Cover, not in Aspen. There's a famous Tattered Cover. Maybe oh. now they've changed it, but the original okay. used to be called. The Explore Bookstore, and it was run by yeah, Catherine. Yeah, I was there once, but it was quite a long time ago too. It was and her husband Bill Sterling, yeah, I met him, mayor yeah. of uh, yeah. of Aspen, and they were famous because they had a big controversy. Where they tried to ban furs in Aspen. Yeah, I, I was that. That's why I was there. That's where I met them. Yeah, they excellent. brought me in to uh, talk against furs. Good, excellent, and well, around that time or a little bit after, my daughter, we were there, and my daughter was six or seven, and and loved Catherine's dogs. There are always dogs in the store, and so Catherine gave my seven-year-old daughter, she said, here's a book you have to have to read. It was Animal Liberation. And um, and um, and my daughter's a vegetarian now, and I don't know if there was a causal relationship there, but it had an impact. Um, and it's nice to see, so it's an important book, but it's really nice to see that it, that it's been, up, I'm not sure updated is the right way to say it, but, but it has, it's been brought, to, to, a lot of things have changed and a lot of things haven't changed. And I think that's the key point. It's, it's sort of one reads this as saying, yes, there's progress. But on the other hand, not only is there not enough progress, in some sense, we've taken steps backwards in certain ways. And it's frustrating your own frustration comes out. We'll come there. Um, uh, and I, I'm now, by the way, don't eat meat. Um, and uh, um, although I still haven't yet removed fish from my diet completely, being surrounded by the water here. And um, right, so you wave the hand at the water. Does that mean you haul the fish out of the water yourself? Or well, you... that's it. We'll get there. We'll get yeah. there because I've actually we'll get there because I, I, I did fly fish and I, I have mm -hmm. I fly, fly fish here. And now when I fly fish here, I hope I don't catch fish because it's so much more relaxing. I do it for my kayak. Oh. But actually, I don't think I would catch fish anymore. I, I, I don't think I, I I used to catch fish and I used to do the worst thing, which was catch them and leave them in my bag and drive them back. This was in Colorado. And then I finally realized, no, I should kill them right away. And right. and at least that's better. So many people who fish don't realize that it's, it's mind boggling to me. Yeah. Well, it's not easy. I mean, it's, you know, and it, 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 for some reason, and maybe it's this, you talked about this in terms of um, how we can convince ourselves. I forget there's a term I'm going to use later, convince ourselves with doing the right thing when it's what we want to do. But it seems a lot of, neglecting the fish is a lot easier than taking a rock and hitting them on the head with it. That's an act, overt act of killing. And, and, and in fact, it's the kindest thing you can do, but it's, yeah. not, it's a lot, 
it seems more violent than just letting them die, you know, and it's really weird. It's really a, a weird thing. Anyway, we'll, we'll get there because I do want to talk about fish or at least, you know, and, and the mussels and oysters, which is something I understand you have your own issues about. I do. This is a big lobster place and I've stopped eating lobster for the moment after reading your book because I, I really have to, I've always thought that lobsters, that the solution that lobsters felt pain when they were being boiled was an illusion. But I understand there's no research in that regard. But we'll get there. It's based on, the, the bottom line is that your book is based on the fact that the equal consideration of interests should, it, it, it's speciesist to assume that that stops at humans. So why don't you just take it from there? Yes, well, there's a lot to take. Yeah, I know, that. and we'll go, I'll try and eat you through it, but... Yes. But, uh, right. So if you have that principle of equal consideration of interests, then you have to ask yourself how serious are the interests of the animals uh, that are violated here and how important are these interests to us humans? So the first point is, of course, we don't need to eat animals to survive. Um, that's you know well known nowadays. Everybody knows people who are uh, vegetarian or, or vegan. Um, if you're vegan, it's advisable to take some B12, but um, you know otherwise you you don't need to to eat them. Um, so it's really it's a matter of choice about your diet. You think that you enjoy these things more, maybe, um, but once once you learn some non-animal based cooking, plant based cooking, I think there's lots of great dishes out there. There's a wide variety of cuisines. Uh, I would really challenge somebody to show that they get more enjoyment from their food than I do. Um, By the way, the new book re reintroduces the, the recipes. I was very happy. That's right. It reintroduces in a more personalized way some of my favorite uh, recipes uh, from the uh, from the first edition. That's right. Um, so, so, you know, that's the first thing. And then what happens to the animals? And this goes back to what we were talking about before, what Richard Keshin alerted me to and Ruth Harrison documented um, in, in her book, and which unfortunately is still going on with the great majority of the meat produced. Um, and that is the animals are confined indoors. Uh, they're very crowded. This is particularly with uh, chickens and turkeys uh, and also with pigs. Um, but uh, cattle are also spend a good part of their lives on, on feedlots. Uh, and, and these are really uh, very bad lives for animals and um, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, one by is the way, we will go through each of them. I want to spend a little time with each of them. So, oh, okay. so, so we'll have right. more time. Okay. So, um, yeah, so, so yes, you were starting out with the kind of basis of it. So if that's the case, then I don't think we're justified in supporting those industries um, for needs that are not vital to ourselves. And I should add, of course, that, um, in terms of net food production, uh, feeding grains and soybeans to animals is just wasteful. Um, it doesn't produce more food for yeah, uh, yeah, and, it, well, and well, climate. I, 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 yeah, I want to get to those factors, but I wanted to start with just the basic, if you wish, philosophical notion. That yeah, so it is that idea which we've talked about before that um, that pain is bad, you know, pleasure, happiness is good, and that to say that they're only good when they apply to humans is in some ways analogous, I'm not saying it's a you know, parallel in every respect, of course, but in some ways it's analogous to what racists and sexists have said um, about about blacks and women. Um, 
So I think we need to get past that prejudice. We need to recognize that non-human animals um, can feel pain. Um, again, maybe not all of them. You mentioned oysters before. I'm not going to say that oysters can feel pain. Um, but but uh, certainly all the vertebrates and some of the invertebrates, you mentioned the lobsters, uh, octopus also is another one, invertebrate you could think about, um, are capable of feeling pain. And uh, so we shouldn't sacrifice their interest in avoiding pain for um, relatively minor interests of ours. Okay, and that's yeah, that notion that that we that 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 consideration should not extend to animals other than humans is you've called speciesism, in in analogy to racism. I actually, you know, I know it's near the end of your book, but I was still I, I was looking again at the bio. I think it's the Wikipedia bio of you, and I was kind of amazed how people take for granted this notion that that's not a good thing to do, and 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 especially philosophers who you think. Would it, I mean, this quote, uh, I, I, which I hadn't seen before in your book, but I did see in, in this, I think it was in the Wikipedia bio of you, a Roger Scruton who criticized your book, An Animal Liberation. I, I, I was shocked at this quote, that it, that book contains little or no philosophical arguments. They, de they derive their radical moral conclusions from the vacuous utilitarianism that counts the pain and pleasure of all living things as equally significant and ignores just about everything that's been said in our philosophical tradition about the real distinction between persons and animals. What has been said in our philosophical tradition about that real distinction? I mean, it's just makes it, it's just, it's, I, I was amazed. It ignores everything we said about the distinction between the real philosophical distinctions between humans and animals of which uh, he didn't elaborate. I, I kind of was shocked. Yes. Right. Well, I'm not sure who he was thinking of, um, uh, you know, Aristotle famously thought that everything exists for us, basically yeah. a pre-Darwinian view of our role. Um, he may have been thinking of, of Kant, who uh, regarded the fact that we are self-aware, autonomous beings as uh, entitling us to uh, use and, and not having obligations towards those beings who are not. Uh, but to me, you know, the definitive answer to that was given by Bentham in that footnote that I mentioned earlier, where he says, uh, the question is not can they reason or can they talk, but can they suffer? Can they suffer? And we're going to get to, I want to, it's, I love how you're leading me along to just where I want to go. But, uh, um, but I must say what, I think what upset me most, I, it pushed my buttons. One, not, not, if I have problems with philosophy and I do every now and then, and people seem to think I have a, a case against philosophy, I don't. But the one kind of argument that I hate is the appeal to authority. When I've been in debates or discussions, and I see people quote Kant or Aristotle, I don't. Who cares? I mean, I mean, it's fine. They, they, they were good thinkers, but 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 that's not an argument. That's saying that saying you know these great thinkers have said this. The argument it's the quality of their argument, not the who said it, that matters. It seems to me, and so you uh, know, saying that this philosophical tradition, who cares about traditions? The question is. Is what it, what is the distinction between human and animals, and and does it validate treating them significantly differently in so, certain ways? Yes, I mean I don't have a conversation with my I do converse with my dog actually, but I don't expect my dog to respond in that regard. Right. But um, but uh, um, anyway, so it pushed my own buttons. But you hit you hit. I don't know if you want now. We won't go there. Um, but the key thing is the capacity to suffer. 
that's often the arguments made. If if if, an, if someone has something or, or some entity has the capacity to suffer, it we should not cause them to suffer unduly if we can avoid it. Yeah, that's right. And and in fact, Bentham also you know went on to say, well, if we're talking about being able to reason or talk, then a horse or a dog is better at it than an infant of a day or a week or a month old. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the distinction between dogs or 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 monkeys or great apes and and young children um and and which is which is something you've brought up which is upsets some people but it's true um it, well, at least the, the 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 fact that they can reason better is certainly true um but let me let me now try and 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 at least push on this a little bit it's a question of degree and it's a question where you draw the line of course and you point out well maybe the line is between shrimps and oysters or mussels but but or then and then you go past that later on and talk about insects being sending. But this really hit me because in my new book, uh, the uh, the last, which is about things we don't know, um, my last chapter is about consciousness, which is a which is something I thought in advance we knew the least about, and after spending a lot of time reading about it, I'm convinced I was right. Um, consciousness is something that we don't. We, it's hard to even define much less know where, where it is. And, and, and a discussion with Chomsky, he said he thought maybe the notion of focusing on consciousness and, and the mechanisms of consciousness may be itself ill-advised. But one thing that, that was clear is that we tend to equate behavior with awareness or behavior with consciousness. And that's clearly inappropriate. So, you know, amoeba and other, you know, in single-celled uh, uh, animals, single-celled living entities, will avoid, will have behavior that makes it appear as if they're conscious. They'll, they can even almost appear to be, have learned where not to travel or, or how to be away from a hot or a acid solution or something like that. And so we have to be particularly careful. And I think Joseph Ledoux and, and others of the people that I've read ha have said that to distinguish between behavior and awareness or 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 uh, consciousness and so and and then to take that a little bit further Demacio was another guy who said basically the key thing that sort of he thinks that leads to conscious awareness self-awareness is feelings is the fact that we that we have feelings that first started just as homeostasis being aware of of being able to manipulate what's happening in our body by nervous system helps a complicated organism maintain its homeostatic condition Whereas a simple organism doesn't need a central nervous system necessarily to do that. But that leads to feelings. But then we have to be careful to, again, not attribute it, the, the, the causal relationships between behavior, between stimulus and behavior and feelings could be different than, than what you think it might be. Again, to take the example of anxiety, as Ledoux talked about, we tend to think that you know, that these anti-anxiety drugs will, will stop anxiety. What they tend to do is stop the physiological response. But it's quite likely that the physiological response is what ultimately produces the sense of anxiety sometimes later on rather than the other way around. And mm -hmm. so if we assume that people are in pain or, or suffering, we may be just anthropomorphizing. So let me, so in, in an extreme way. And to assume that is... Um, is it maybe inappropriate? What do you what do you have to say about that? Well, I think 
you're right that we can't identify behavior with mental states like like suffering or pain, but they can be an, a reasonable indication of it. Uh, and I think, you know, they're one of the important indications. Another indication might be trying to directly observe the nervous system and see to what extent it parallels ours. And I think that works for vertebrates to some extent, um, but but it isn't always enough um, because even with with vertebrates, there might be different parts of the brain involved. Um, and so, you know, you were talking about fish before. That's why there were some challenges to the idea that fish can feel pain. But, um, you know, then how do you show that it seems like some other parts of the brain are actually performing this function of consciousness in fish from the doing us? Well, one way would be to try and look at the behavior and, and look at it in a somewhat more sophisticated way. So I, I think you're right that just, you know, uh, there's no reason to believe that an amoeba can, can feel pain just because it moves away from something that could damage or threaten it. But um, but when you look at fish, um, there's research that shows that they actually will make trade-offs um, between things that normally they seem to want to do, preferred states, um, and those that they want to avoid. So, you know, yes, you... If, if if you put a barrier in a tank that will give a fish an electric shock if it passes through it, it won't pass through it. But suppose that this is a fish that has a a, a companion, the kind of fish that is is with it pairs up with another member of its species, and uh, the, the the mate is on the other side of this barrier. Will the fish go through it? Well, that will depend on how strong the shock is. So. If the if the shock is not extremely severe, yes, the fish will cross the barrier. If the fish is if the if the shock is really severe, um, the fish may not cross the barrier. And the same will be if you vary the incentive to being food, for instance, and how hungry the fish might be. So it looks like they're trading off in a somewhat similar way to what we might do. Um, and then another factor is if you give them analgesics, um, it seems to have a similar kind of effect that it would on us. That is, they are readier to do things that would otherwise uh, previously have caused them some pain. So it's, you know, when you get these kinds of parallels, I think it's reasonable to say the balance of probability is that they're conscious and can feel pain. It's not certainty, I agree with that, but um, I certainly think it's a balance that we ought to give them, you know, the, or to give them the, the, uh, the benefit of the doubt, in other words. The benefit of the doubt. I was going to get there. I think your argument, which make, I mean, the strongest argument you make is that we don't know, and we might as well give them the benefit of the doubt on the whole. But, the, but, but, but I guess I'm, I'm, I constantly want to ask that skeptical question. The behavior of the fish, well, you know, I mean, the fish has by evolution some behavior, which is, you know, reproduction, reproductive behavior, wanting to be with a mate, need to eat, et cetera, et cetera, which may have nothing to do with intent clearly and if if sir if the if if the thing that's produced like the shock causes humans pain it may cause it, we don't know that it's pain in a fish it's just maybe something that their that their internal homeostatic system says is it's best to avoid um but but the argument i, I want to use your own words against you in some sense here well i was i was taken by this because you talk about plants 
Yeah. And and whether plants are intelligent. That's an interesting, you know, a question. But you said this advance in our understanding of plants shows that they're not the passive objects that we may imagine they are. Quite interestingly, I thought that was very the discussion was interesting. But this does not show that they are conscious or capable of feeling pleasure or pain. Self-driving cars can communicate by sending electronic signals. Electrical signals are intelligent and can learn from their mistakes, but they're not conscious. It's true that plants are natural, evolved living beings, whereas self-driving cars are inanimate objects made by humans. That is not, however, sufficient reason for concluding that plants are conscious. If we can design objects that respond intelligently to their circumstances, but without being conscious, then hundreds of millions of years of evolution could produce a similar outcome. And so I would, in some sense, would say, couldn't you use that argument for most animals? I mean, 100 million years have caused the animals to appear to be intelligent without being conscious or self-aware or, or even feeling the kind of feelings that, that we do. Uh, well, I mean, and obviously you're right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm using it to suggest that plants are complex but are not conscious. Um, I think in the, in the case of vertebrates, the evidence is, is much more plausible that something similar has evolved in them than in, mm -hmm. as in us because we have a, a common origin um, and the behavior is similar in the ways that I suggest uh, and, and, uh, and the anatomy and physiology are similar to some respects and, and differ, you know, depending on what species we're talking about. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's much more reasonable to say it probably works in the same way and there is some kind of awareness as there is with us. Uh, the more difficult cases are the ones where there isn't a common origin. And I have to acknowledge that isn't only plants, it's also um, invertebrates. So mm -hmm. I assume, this is, can't be certain, but you know, looking at what others have written about it, I assume that the, ans the common ancestor of us and an octopus was not a conscious being. Uh, it seems like, you know, we're talking maybe as much as 500 million years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, seems likely to have been a simple organism that uh, wasn't conscious. And yet, when we look at the behavior of the octopus, and of course, millions of people have now seen that octopus, my teacher film. Yeah. Um, but even, even without that, there's a lot of research about what octopus can do and uh, how cool. they are and so on. Um, so it's, you know, yes, I, I think your objection might apply to an octopus. It's give me some doubt, but I, I can't really say that. Supply, I'm, I'm, no, I'll, I'll give it. I'm, I've already octopus, octopi are, are intelligent. I stopped eating them when, around before that film, but other things. I mean, just amazing how intelligent they are. But, but, um, but nevertheless, you know, people, again, when I, when I tried to understand consciousness, people would say, yeah, we have a common origin. But if you look at the prefrontal cortex, if you look at the way the, 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 the neurons are developed in that part of the human brain, we share that at most with some of the great apes and maybe some birds. And so there are differences. So I guess the question is, and this is the question I think you, 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 you've faced yourself, where does this stop? Does it ever stop? Does it go all the way down to plants? Or there is some line, and I think, of course, it's hard to know. Um, and and I guess the only answer one can give is, unless there's a good reason, give them the benefit of the doubt. Unless you need to, give them the benefit of the doubt. But again, you drew the line, I think, somewhere originally between shrimps and oysters, and I think you yeah. still do. But but uh, yeah, I still I still do. Um, and you know, though in general, I accept your your view, and, and we do have to eat something, so that would be a reason for eating. 
plants if uh, anyway. But um, I think also in evolutionary terms, it's reasonable to think that consciousness is more likely to evolve in beings who can move away from danger that they sense. Uh, and that would be a reason for thinking that uh, there are a lot of animals, possibly even insects, who can be conscious, but not plants um, and not an oyster. Because an but, oyster. Um, but again, single bacteria and amoeba can certainly move away from, right. from, yeah. from danger. That's right. But then it's just so hard to imagine that um, the capacity for consciousness can reside in you know a single cell. Well, maybe or... that's speciousness. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Well, it's, uh, it's 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 what is it? Multicellularist. Yeah, yeah. It's multicellularism. But maybe if maybe next century that'll become multicellularism a... is is more reasonable than uh, speciesism. It's. I think the key question is the difficult question. It's a difficult question. We can none of us can answer. Is who can suffer, uh, and 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 I think. And that's a problem. That's a deep problem that I don't know. Each of us may decide on our own level because I don't, you know, if we do some research, uh, if we try and be responsible. But, but I think your point is that while it's it's debatable, there is clear suffering in animals. We should at the very least be worried about suffering of animals where we can clearly see suffering. The 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 the, the tenuous cases are are maybe debatable. And those that tend to be the animals that we eat, mm-hmm. and 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 I think that's a key point, and um, and I, and so I want to go through the, the some of the arguments chapter by chapter, more or less, not quite chapter by chapter in your book, and then I, I do want to get, again raise some philosophical questions, perhaps, or things that came to my mind. But the first version of suffering, I was just most shocked about. I guess I, I, I mean factory farming. I think I knew about because we talked about it a lot. When we had our dialogue in in um, in Phoenix, and I was kind of aware, but I, I still I'm always amazed at the level that we cause suffering. But but the one thing that really surprised me was animal experimentation. Was namely, and now this will get a no, whole new set of people angry with me. But uh, the 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 facile nature of most of these psychology experiments, I was shocked. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but you don't, doesn't seem to me you have to be, have a PhD in psychology to see that the kind of ridiculous tortures that are applied to animals are, are both not only unnecessary, but they are torture and that they're not going to give any insight into humans, which is what they're intended to do. I mean, when you describe the way that, that a wide variety of animals from dogs to monkeys to other animals are literally tortured and, 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 you know, confined and and remove and and not allowed to have stimuli to see if it's going to in any way reproduce the emotional disturbances that humans have, without realizing that the emotional disturbances that humans have is intimately related to our ability to communicate in our society and our conscious. But doing that just seems like it reminds me of Nazi experiments. I mean, I I just couldn't see the difference between them. It's there's no. Am I missing something? No, I don't really think you are missing something, unfortunately. Um, and I do think that these, you know, even if you didn't care uh, about the animal suffering, you should think that they're basically a waste of public funds um, that is going into this work. Um, and the description of them as torture is in many cases appropriate too, because what they're trying to do, for example, and I describe in the book, uh, in, well, let me say in the first edition, I, I described a series of experiments that were trying to produce what was called learned helplessness in yes. animals to 
and give them inescapable electric shocks until they became helpless and passively accepted the shock. And that was in some way supposed to give us an opportunity to learn something about depression in humans. Um, you know, and that went on since the 1950s or something, and, and obviously hasn't helped us to overcome depression. It's caused an immense amount of suffering. After a while, the experimenters, some of them acknowledge this, that this is not helping us to learn about depression. And you want to think, well, then they stop. But actually what happened is that line of experiments switched into looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Um, now, if you're going to try to study that in animals, obviously you have to give them traumatic stress in order to create this PTSD mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, maybe hope that you'll somehow learn something about treating that in humans. But, um, you know, so so that's where the torture comes in. We've got to give this animal such a traumatic experience that it's going to somehow mimic PTSD in humans. Um, but that's a, that's a terrible thing in itself. And, you know, I won't describe now, but people can read the book to see exactly how they try to do it. Just um, unbelievable. What, what one say? I mean, just the, you can't help but what mind came up with some of these things. But anyway, go on. Yeah, that's right. But, um, you know, so in the end, it, 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 it doesn't help because, as you just said, you know, that obviously has a lot to do with the way we see the world and the way we relate. And Well, know. I can't understand. I mean, I, I would never suggest that you give humans traumatic stress. But the point is, there are a lot of humans with PTSD, and you'd think the way to try and understand it would be to, under, to study them as uh, humans. That would be a much better use of our, of our tax dollars, absolutely. Yeah, no question about that. Now, so, okay, so that that's the sort of low-hanging fruit, the obvious examples of of animal experimentation and of course the off awful experimentation that was done on animals for the the perfume and other industry which you know those that's a low-hanging fruit but but i do and so people should read the book up to see some of this because it is surprising uh, even if you've, you've heard some of it but but you have argued that animal testing is not always bad or at least in principle is not always bad if the if the benefit if there are clear benefits for say humans so i i want you to at least elaborate on that because it appears contradictory i don't think it is necessarily but it appears contradictory so i want i wanted you to, to uh, well, let me just slightly modify what you said i i don't think that experiments are necessarily justified merely by the fact that they have clear benefits for humans the benefits for humans or let's say, since we're never certain when we do experiments, whether there will be benefits. So let's say the expected value of the benefits for humans, that is the benefits discounted by the odds that we won't achieve those benefits, um, has to be greater than the expected negative value for animals based on this principle that we talked about before, equal consideration of interests. So since it's pretty certain that the animals will suffer pain, the expected value is basically the value of or the net the disvalue of the pain and suffering that is going to be inflicted on them so if there is significant pain and suffering there has to be a reasonably either a reasonably high probability of a benefit for humans or the benefit has to be very large for a lot of humans um, and if that is the case and we are genuinely applying this principle of equal consideration of interests and we are doing everything we can to avoid inflicting suffering on animals, including looking for alternatives that don't use animals and increasingly more alternatives are being developed in various ways. And if we are using animals, 
to minimize their suffering both in the experiment itself and in terms of how they're housed because that's another low-hanging fruit the mm -hmm. close confinement and miserable housing we'll, of many we'll go, i want to talk about each each of those in detail <laughs> right yeah um but but again as a consequentialist as a utilitarian i can't say it's always wrong to harm an animal no matter how great the benefit that would be just like saying it's it's always wrong to tell a lie no, no matter how great the benefit uh so i don't believe that um but i do believe that you need to be as impartial as you can in counting the interests of the animals against the possible benefits to humans and, and that's that's just not done in the present system, right? There is no it, equal consideration of interest for animals. But without speciesism, then the same argument I think could be applied to experimenting on humans, right? Well, it could be. Um, I mean, on, on infants, say, or or or. Right. or yeah, right? you if you if you tried to do it on normal humans, then I guess there would be the factor that this would become known and we would all be fearful that, yeah. um, you know, humans were being, I don't know how it was happening. Maybe they were going into hospital and then they were getting sent off to the labs. And so we wouldn't go into hospital and we would die at a much greater rate. Or um, maybe we would, they were being kidnapped as they crossed parks. And so we wouldn't, parks would be empty. So obviously for normal, you know, aware humans, I think that would not be a, a good practice, but Yes, you could consider it maybe for humans not capable of understanding such things. Um, you mentioned infants, but you know infants generally will be will be loved by their parents who will understand it. Um, so you're not going to find many. Now you know you might say, well, there could be abandoned, orphaned infants or abandoned, orphaned, profoundly retarded, uh, profoundly intellectually disabled humans. Um, experiments then I mean I don't want to labor this because we can get near the end I mean you've gotten in I mean some people object to the to the rational arguments you've given that uh, regarding infants and maybe uh, um people in latter stages who who don't who aren't who are comatose uh but one could say yeah well the infants have parents and they they'll get extremely suffer or older people who are comatose you might want to say harvest their organs for some for for people to save people's lives and their families will be will be negatively impacted but you might say that that's the pain and suffering that's the that's the marginal cost but is it can you save more you know are you helping more people in the process and i think you have to at least ask that question yeah yeah you might and of course you know people do leave their bodies for um dissection to help train medical students and so on but that's after they're dead not that's before they right um but you could, I, I would certainly be equally prepared to say, um, and should I ever be irreversibly comatose, um, you know, not not dead, not necessarily brain dead, as yeah, that yeah. is defined, which is another issue. But um, but but just should it be somebody scans my brain and they, it's clear that I can never recover consciousness. Um, yeah, you could use my body for uh, research that um, might be more valuable than research on animals because I am, after all, a member of the species that you're trying to benefit. Yeah, no, I, I, I have to agree with you there. And well, maybe we'll get to that near the end. I mean, I'm a, my, I brought my mother here when she's 100 and she died in the house and I have very strong feelings about the efforts that were made for no reason whatsoever to keep her alive in, in my house and, and that, I, that hurt, that were very difficult. Anyway, we'll see if they get there. But let's, 
Okay, I wanted to hit that philosophical question. It's a deep, it's a deep question, and it's going to cause people some people anguish that we even had that discussion. But nevertheless, that's what these. That's the point, I think, is to get people thinking about these questions. But I do want to now go to the factory farming, which some people may not be aware of. I mean, I think if I, if I, you know, I just was with a young man and I, I, you know, and, and he can't understand why, why don't we meet and basically said he was going to eat more meat because I was arguing with him. And, and, um, but, but people should be aware. It's not that, um, that all that, Farms are happy, nice places all the time, and and that at least in the West, in the in the first world, most agriculture is factory farming, and and in the process of that, there is incredible suffering. So why don't why don't we? I don't want to belabor this for the long time, but why don't we spend a little time with each of the animals? Let's talk about chickens. Okay, um, so if we're talking about chickens raised for meat, um, one of the big problems is that they are bred to grow extremely fast they get to the weight at which they're sold in a you know about half the time or less from traditional chicken raising now what's wrong with that one thing that's wrong is that their leg bones are not maturing fast enough and not strong enough really to hold their weight so um experts who looked at their welfare um particular professor webster who founded a center for animal farmed animal welfare in in bristol in england says that for the last couple of weeks of their lives, it's like forcing someone with arthritis to stand all day um, because they're in pain from bearing their weight. You might ask, well, why don't they sit down? There's a reason for that too. They're reared in very crowded sheds and their droppings have fallen onto the floor mixed with the litter that's there. And it's not even cleaned out between each block of of birds. They're, They're only six or seven weeks old when they're sold. Um, and if you have a moist atmosphere with a lot of bird droppings, that forms a, a caustic solution. So if they sit on the on the litter, they actually get caustic burns, alkaline burns on their thighs um, and their breasts, and that's painful to them. So they don't sit for long periods. Now, there's a second aspect of, of this growing so fast or being bred to grow so fast that is just, you know, something that people never think about, and it just shows what the whole system is like. The parents of these birds also have to have huge appetites and grow very fast. But if you gave them as much as they want to eat as you give the young chickens, they would be so fat when they were sexually mature that they would never be able to mate. The, the male just could not get to the right place on the female from this you know, fat body that he would have. So um, to do that, to to get them sexually mature and survive, you have to starve them, basically. you standard thing is you skip a day feed. You feed them only every second day. And these are birds bred to have great appetites. Mm-hmm. So each sec- every second day, they're really hungry, looking for more food everywhere. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just something the, farm, the, the factory farmers, industrial farmers would do. That's the way to produce chicken cheaply. And the fact that the, I guess the other thing that I, I can, comes to mind for me is that is that is that they're is that they're constrained in such small spaces they can't turn around they can't. Um, oh, these are the egg laying hens, now, right? I yeah, was talking. Yeah, about, yeah. It's the egg laying ones who are yeah again we're really constrained the egg laying ones and and yeah. so you talk about eggs because I I do eat eggs so so right. but I always eat eggs that say free range. 
you should have in Canada uh, there and uh, Prince Edward Island, you should have access to good free range eggs. Yeah. Um, they will not come from hens who are kept in cages. They will come from hens who not only are cage free, which is a label widely used in the United States, but can still be a very crowded system, although not in small cages. But uh, free range should mean that they're able to go outside, at least in suitable weather, um, and range around, you know, peck in the grass, chase butterflies or whatever. Um, and that that isn't a bad life, you know. So if you have that, um, then you could you could say, well, that's a reasonable deal. The bird gets a decent life, a shorter life than a hen would normally have because once the rate of lay drops off, they'll send the hen to be slaughtered. But um, yeah, it's it's not it's not too bad a life. So, so it's okay to eat those free range eggs, is that right? I think so. I must say, I don't know what the conditions are like in winter in Canada, right? In, in Australia, we they can be out all year round, um, oh, wow. but probably not where you are. Um, but yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's a lot better. So you know, I, okay, I've, no, again, I was, it's an interesting question because I've thought about that. Okay, let's and pigs now, which are who are extremely smart. Let's yeah. let's start saying that. And what happens to them? So why don't you mention pigs? What, 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 what... Sure. Well, pigs are also standard, <clears throat> standardly kept inside. Um, they never go uh, outside at all in their lives. They're very crowded. Um, but the worst problems are for the mothers, the mother pigs, the, the breeding sows, um, who are still commonly kept, uh, this is in the United States, certainly commonly kept in individual stalls. Um, where they can't turn around. They have nothing to do all day except stand up and lie down. And for a little while, they get some food, which they eat quickly. Uh, and um, like the uh, chickens, the breeding chickens I was talking about, they too um, have to be kept fairly hungry because if you fed them as much as they have an appetite to eat, because their offspring also should put on weight as fast as possible, um, they would also get, get too fat. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, they're also likely to be hungry, um, as well as being very restricted in their movement. I, I was right. They're also bred to be, I mean, they become very fat so much quicker than pigs in the wild would be. Or isn't that the case? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's true of the ones who do get set into market. Yeah, even though they're, they're, they're killed fairly young. Um, so, uh, but they still are already quite large and fat. Um, but, uh, it's the it's the parent pigs who have more health problems with more health problems the way they their appetite and they often become lame too because their legs don't really support their weight again. And, and the behavior also I, my understanding is that you know we think of pigs as filthy in these in these things but in fact that 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 if they're if they're sort of i don't know whether you want to call it wild but if they're not they're not that kind of behavior is not observed right no, if they're if they're free, so if pigs are naturally forest animals, yeah. and uh, if you leave them in the forest, uh, they're quite clean. They'll have a dunging area which is away from where they sleep, and the sow will build a nest with twigs and leaves before she has her uh, piglets, and and she'll keep that um, clean as well. So yeah, no, it's 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 only when they're kept confined that they become filthy. And you know it's true in the factory farms they're quite often kept on on slats on metal slatted floors which are hosed down so then they're not filthy but they're also not comfortable because you know they're they're just lying on this There's, they're not given any straw or bedding because that has to be changed and that yeah. costs money and labor so they're just on bare concrete or slats. Cows. 
Well, cows, particularly the dairy industry, um, the real problem there that people often, again, don't see is that a cow will only give milk if she's had a calf within a certain period, let's say roughly a year. Um, so you have to make cows pregnant each year if they're to continue to give milk. And of course, cows are mammals, and there's a close bond between the mother and her calf. And to take the calf away from the mother causes her prolonged distress. And dairy farmers will tell you that um, you know, if the cows were in a particular spot, usually now these cows are intensive and they're not moving around. But in more traditional farms, if the cows could would walk past the spot where their calf was taken from them, even even weeks or months ago, some of them would still stop and look around and call for their calf because they would remember that that was where they lost their calf. Um, and the fate of the calf isn't good either, of course. Yeah, and especially the one <laughs> led for veal. But um, but uh, the I, I want to ask about this for personal reasons because I, I live, I'm surrounded, I think, by a lot of dairy farms. And I actually like, I, I, I'm, I drive by and I see all these cows in the field during the day. And I, I, and when I come by at night, I see them all, cows coming in from the field and lining up into the well-lit area where they, and then at night I see them all kind of lined up there. And it, it just sort of, it looks like a nice life. And I don't know if it's just because I live in PEI or, but on the other hand, I've also, I was also surprised a neighbor of mine was a dairy farmer and he was, he, he's gone to Africa to try and help them improve the output of their cows for, for milk and stuff and he and i think you were and it surprised me because he said he said here they get like 40 liters per cow or something immense number so you'd think it'd be the kind of factory farming that would be bad but i don't see it so i don't know am i missing something or 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 um, um I, I don't i don't want to comment on the cows in prince edward yeah. island because i don't really know anything about them whether uh, the productivity is because they're given supplemental rations or because of the way they're bred, um, I honestly don't know. But but the majority of milk produced in affluent countries is not from cows that are grazing in fields. It's yeah, it's intensive. Yes. I mean, the, the public came to realise that um, over the summer this year, I don't know if you read, there was a barn fire in Texas. Barn is a bit of an inverted commas yeah. word here. Yeah. Which yeah. killed 18,000 cows, right? So there were 18,000 cows that were locked up in this barn. Um, and that, you know, was they weren't going out. You know, you can't have fields for 18,000 yeah, cattle. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they, were, they were intensively farmed. That, that's where they were kept. And then food was brought to them. Um, so they were not moving around. They were not out there grazing. And, uh, uh, you know, that's that's the way of big milk production, unfortunately, in a lot of, in a lot of countries. And on keeping, I suppose one could say the cow, as you say, that keeping the cows pregnant and moving the calves is, is we'll get to that. I want to talk about companion animals later on, but yeah. 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 I mean, I have to say, I don't, because of lactose reasons, I have soy milk or, or, or oat milk anyway, but, but, um, so I feel better all around when I see the cows. What? There are plenty of non-dairy alternatives. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the thing that was, again, hits home for me and a little bit of surprise well, not quite surprised because my, my wife was actually worked on on big boat fishing boats when she was going through college, um, but fish uh, again. I have been a pescatarian in that sense of eating fish and not meat, um, and and you're and, and it's an issue that I'm grappling with, and and 
Certainly we cause incredible distress. I mean, the fish that are picked up in nets and just basically suffocate uh, or, or are crushed. I mean, huge. I mean, these are factory fishing boats. These are not, you know, yeah. and, and uh, um, but, but why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because I didn't realize the numbers are like trillions. Well, it's really hard to know because um, the statistics are kept in tons rather than individual animals. Um, but the best estimate that I've seen suggests that the number of fish caught and killed each year is uh, something between one and 2.7 trillion fish, um, which is just a completely mind-boggling yeah. number, of course. And uh, there is basically no humane slaughter for them. So they are suffering in various ways, depending whether they're, as you said, hauled up in nets or whether they're caught on long lines, you know, lines kilometers long with thousands of hooks on them. Uh, that's pretty bad. And for the sustainability of the oceans, it's obviously very bad. But, um, but there is also intensive fish production. And, um, you know, when, for example, if people buy salmon, um, 70% of salmon is now uh, farmed salmon, not free-caught mm -hmm. salmon. And the problem with that is that, well, there are a number of problems. One is that the salmon who would normally travel across the ocean famously and then swim upstream to yeah. spawn um, are confined in, in nets going round and round in circles. Secondly, salmon are carnivorous fish. So to feed these salmon, it's, it's like factory farming is when I said it's a waste of food value. This is actually a waste of, of fish because uh, somebody did a study of um, salmon. Salmon takes about three years to grow to market weight, mm -hmm. um, around four kilos. And the salmon, by the time they're being killed, has been responsible for consuming 147 fish, um, you know, ground, caught from the oceans generally, low-value fish, ground up and made into pellets. So... Um, there's, it's a huge amount of suffering, not just the suffering of the salmon you're eating, but the suffering of the fish who went into that salmon and the impact on the ocean of all of that uh, catching of fish. That, and and uh, I suppose the lost, the lost possible, I mean, the fact that, you, yeah, the fact that as with cows, as you talk about, you know, the number of calories and protein out versus in is always a small fra um, fraction less than one. Absolutely, yes, yes, that's right. It's not at all an effective way of uh, um, producing food, and sometimes actually it takes food from poor people because you know trawlers serving the affluent world are just off the coastal limits of, let's say, countries in West Africa, um, and so some of those people can no longer get fish because they were fishing villages that the fish just aren't there, and that's partly responsible for the African migrants who are desperately trying to get into Europe because they can't sustain themselves where they grew up. Yeah, so that that's exactly it. So it's a matter of, yeah, okay. So, and, and you make that point often, is that is that even if you're thinking things are done for the benefit of humans, to the extent that they are, they often have quite the opposite effect. And one of the, one of the effects, which, is, which you talk about, and I want to talk about, because again, I've heard mixed, I've studied this a lot, because my last book was about climate change. One of the negative effects of 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 eating animals is related to climate change so yeah absolutely um, and and, yeah. and so it's it's one of these things where you think you're benefiting humans but in the long run humans may suffer because of it um now i, I think that it's unambiguous that it's better for the environment and better for climate change n not to 
not to eat animal, not to breed mass amounts of, of animals for meat. Um, but, but I, I am more, I am wary of some, some of the comparisons that are often made by saying, well, if you just gave up eating meat, you, you, you'd, we'd get this much, you know, we'd save this many tons of carbon or this many. And one of the arguments is again, okay, you're taking protein and calories that could be used to feed humans. And, and, you know, sometimes in the ratio of 40 or a hundred to one, you're, 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 uh, um, centralizing them and, and concentrating them in a, in a meat animal, when in fact you could have just used all that, you know, protein and calories to feed human beings anyway. And so you're actually sort of wasting resources. Um, and those resources that are being wasted are also uh, co contributing to climate change. But, but I want to, and so you talk about that cogently in the book and, and, and I don't know if you want to add anything to what I've just said before I get, to, to no, I think you said it very well. Okay, um, but but there is the issue that okay, you can't. I'm wary when people say if you just turned over this to that, you'd gain this much, and I think that that's unrealistic because of course you'd end up having, if you stopped eating meat, you'd end up still having to have at least in the Western world a kind of factory agriculture that would be producing these calories and protein that would 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 in one way or another. Um, if you're if you're using more land than you were using before, then you you know you'll be producing more carbon. Well, but sorry, but I don't see why you're using more land because we we grow we're using so much land to feed to these animals, which, as you just said, is shrinking the amount of food available. So I think we'd be using less land. Well, uh, yeah. Let, let 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 me go to the third world in the case where there's land and then there's arable land. So the question is. Um, would there be, so you have to get pro calorie, I mean, take those people fishing off the coast of Africa. That's a concentrated protein that they can get because they presumably don't have arable land to, enough arable land per person to to uh, sustain themselves, right? right? And so there's lots of arable land in, in North America and in other places around the world, but but there are parts of the world where where there isn't, sufficient land if you could have it to um to to support a local population sustainably without many other resources and fishing is one example of that yeah. but there's also the question of you know sort of buying cattle that are produced elsewhere or animals that are produced elsewhere that you haven't that you haven't uh, raised um uh you know locally and so, you know, there are these hairy issues at the edge that I wonder whether I've read, I guess I wanted to ask you, I've read numbers for as far as the impact of climate change on climate change of say, a world be stopping eating meat, flesh. I've read factors of two to five reduction in carbon to as low as 5%. I, I Bill Gates actually in his book, I think tried to do a really realistic, have you read, have you looked at Bill Gates's book on this? Or no, I mean, I, you know, I, it's a, it's a, a much better book than I thought it'd be trying to basically calculate, doing a reasonable calculation of the kind of economic cost benefit analysis of doing certain things. Like, as I say, obviously meat production is carbon intensive and wasteful and bad for the environment in every way, but what realistically would be required to sort of turn that around. So I just didn't know if you, if you've, if, if, um, 
I am wary about statements that it would dramatically cut human carbon production, which I've read in some of the literature, if we went to a vegetarian diet. But I, I think the I think the case is still open a little bit, and I didn't know if you'd you, you, you. Well, I certainly I think it's agreed that it would cut it, and you're right. The question is how dramatically it would cut it, but um, and it also depends uh, on the time frame that we're talking about, because the, the the greenhouse gas that is produced by most animals, especially the ruminants, is methane. Yeah. Um, and methane breaks down faster than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So what most people do is they calculate the how much worse methane is than carbon dioxide over a century. And the answer they get to that is something like 27 times. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't have a century to cut our greenhouse gas emissions and save the planet from catastrophe. We maybe have 20 years. And if you talk about the relative impact of methane on to carbon dioxide, over a 20-year period, then it's it's something like almost five times as much. It's 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 anyway, it's 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 close to a hundred, I think. It's like 80 times as much. So when you put that into it, then you do get a much more dramatic you get a much more impact. direct number. Again, I again having thought about this, and I try to balance because I, I you know, I, as I say, I wrote a book about climate change and but I'm not sure catastrophe is 20 years away. It may, I mean, catastrophe may be away 20 years away for so many reasons. But, um, but you know, I, I happen to think the catastrophe that's most likely to result from climate change is not the physical impact, not the fact that it'll be hotter in places or or the fact that sea levels are, are going to rise by at least a quarter of a meter or a half a meter before the end of the century. I'd say the end of the century is more realistic uh, argument for when there'll be serious impacts on human population, especially in coastal areas. I happen to think the bigger threat is the socio-political impact, namely the, the multiplier effect that there'll be that that you'll be, you'll have climate refugees and that's going to produce uh socio-political problems like it did in sudan and that's going to produce wars and we have nuclear weapons and so so uh, uh you know i'm wary about saying that I, I i'm not i think climate change alone physical climate change in 20 years will make certain places in the on the earth unha uninhabitable i su i suspect that are almost uninhabitable now but I, i'm not sure it, it's, it's fair not to say only it's not only what the world will be like in 20 years, it's whether we have more than 20 years to prevent what it's going to be like in 50 or 80 years. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it, we. I think in that sense, I may be more of an optimist. I'm not sure we have any time left in that sense. But I'm also an optimist about technology. And, and, there, and, and there are technologies that might, you know, we can make projections assuming current trends, which is a personally reasonable thing to do. But they're all, you know, not that I think it's that realistic to have carbon capture. I don't know any good, uh, and I've been in Iceland and visited a carbon capture facility there, and and I've been I worked with people at my old university and trying to develop cheaper ways of carbon capture. But even the cheapest is a hundred dollars per ton, which means when you're talking about ten, you know, when when you're talking about gigatons of carbon, it is is economically prohibitive at present. But mm. technology, you know, the technology may may help in various ways. I happen to think. We're most likely going to be led to geoengineering for better or worse. Um, and I don't know, but, you know, I'm willing to at least be open to the fact that there are things I don't know that we may be able to do, at least ameliorate those effects in, the, in this century. But that doesn't mean we, sh that's not an argument to stop worrying about carbon. It just gives us a longer 
longer time to be able to do the right thing, maybe. But, but it's also not an argument, presumably, against reducing the risk of really bad things happening. Exactly. When, when we can do that relatively easily. And, That's, I, think, and I think that comes uh, back to your argument about effect, in some sense, effective altruism, the calculation uh, of marginal costs. Yes, you know, I, I think I said in my book, it reminds me of those, you maybe never watched those Dirty Harry movies with Clint Eastwood. But no. he used to point a gun at the guy, the gun may have one bullet in it. And he said, you're feeling lucky, punk. And ultimately, we have to say to ourselves as a, as a civilization, well, these worst, worst scenarios or really disaster scenarios may not be the case. But the risk, you have to balance risk off impact and ask is, are you willing to risk it? Are you willing yeah. to risk that it's not going to happen? That is the problem. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's, I want to, I want to, I, I want to get through, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, uh, let's go to the standard objections, which I think it's worth you talking about. Two of them that I can think of. One that I used to give to a friend of mine, an Indian friend of mine, a colleague, a physicist, when I used to say why I ate meat, I said, well, those cows wouldn't be around if I were, if I wasn't eating them. That's the first one. And the second one is animals kill other animals. So why should we kill animals? The floor is well, yours. Let's deal with the second one first because okay. it's easier, actually. I think it's a really bad argument. Um, you know, we don't take moral lessons from what other animals do. Um, we, uh, you know, other animals may do a whole range of bad, bad things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is almost the argument that, well, it's natural, so it's good. And, you know, nobody really thinks that everything natural is good. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that's a serious argument at all. The other one is a serious argument, um, assuming that the animals are having good lives, right? The other one is it's no argument at all for factory farmed animals to say they wouldn't exist if we weren't going to eat them because then you just say yes, and that would be better if they didn't exist than if they had those miserable lives. But um, for the, the free-range hens maybe that are laying the eggs that you're talking about, I think you could argue that their lives are worth living. Um and you could argue that if there were no customers for the eggs, they wouldn't exist. And so then the question is, um, is it is it okay to have a system which is harming these animals in the sense of killing them uh, at the end of their lives, or in the case mm -hmm. of the hens, at, at the end of their laying when they're when they're no longer laying as many eggs? Um, is that justified? Because they'll then be another animal not yet existing who will come into existence and that um is a really interesting philosophical question it's related to questions that were developed by derek parfitt who was an oxford philosopher who died six years ago um who i knew well and regard as you know one of the most brilliant philosophers i've ever met um, and he discussed it in terms of human population so you can ask similar questions about is it better to have a larger human population if the total happiness on this planet is then greater, even if the average level of happiness is lower, right? Because, mm -hmm. because the total is greater. Um, and that's something that philosophers are still discussing um, and all sorts of views are put up to try to find a coherent answer in that and a lot of other situations that Parfitt uh, developed in his work. So um, it's relevant to questions about creating more lives if they're good lives as against causing some harm to existing beings. And uh, that's why I say it's a good, it's a good argument in the sense that it's, it's an argument that I do not claim I can 
clearly refute because if I could, I would have to have a solution to the population problems that Parfit raised and I and, um, you know, uh, a few hundred other philosophers, uh, many of whom I really admire, have not yet come up with a solution to that problem. So, you know, then yeah, there's the- I think you mentioned, though, something did resonate with me, which is, which is it's hard to argue about the lives of hypothetical, hypothetical beings versus beings that are around. So, it's, for example, if we didn't eat meat, we have a lot fewer cows, but the fewer cows we'd have would live better lives if we had cows. Uh, and and yes. so why, you know, why, why should we argue about all the hypothetical cows that would be? Yeah, I mean, you know, one, one philosopher once said, um, you know, the question is, uh, should we be making people happy or should we be making happy people? Um, and most people, when you put that to them that way, will say, well, we should be making people happy. Uh, you know, we're not in the business of trying to manufacture happy people. But you know, this is something effective altruists talk to also, is it, would it be a really bad thing if our species became extinct? Um, of course, it would be bad in that we all died, but would it be bad in the way they think that then there would not be you know, untold vast numbers of humans living in millions of years in the future who we can reasonably hope might have very good lives? Um uh, so, you know, I, I, I find, I, I don't find that I have a clear cut answer to these questions. Uh, and, and that's why I would say, if in fact the animals that you're consuming really have had positive lives, if you can really be confident of that, um, and, uh, you know, you prefer to keep eating them and putting aside the climate change issues and the waste of food that's involved, let's assume that it's not a waste of food because they're grazing on uh, grassland that is not arable land. Um, you know, then it's 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 hard for me to say clearly. Yes, this is wrong, and this is why it's wrong. So okay. In fact, you did say yeah. that. You said you can't. Yeah. In fact, I I, was, I I didn't remember it, but you said it elsewhere. If farm animals give you know, if farms give animals really good lives and hum and they humanely kill them, then I would don't say that killing them you know is wrong. It's the suffering that's wrong. So, um, in that regard, um. There was some. There was a, something I read uh, later on in the book when you talk about how people are concerned about protecting animals. Uh, by the way, just so you know, I want to go maybe fifteen more minutes because if, if you if you can do it, okay. I hope I, I know I'm I'll pushing try. you to the limit. I'm it's, making you suffer, but it's for the benefit of humankind. Okay, so okay. I'll, your suffering I'll, I'll, is I'll struggle through it in that case. Yeah, but, uh, I, I've, I I've thought to. about this, and and the effect of altruism, it's worth it. I hope, yeah. but um, uh. You argue that you know sometimes people say we should be helping animals and and we're not. And you say the American ecologist Aldo Leopold, once a keen hunter of wolves, later came to see that eliminating wolves leads to an increase in deer population, which in turn causes the deer to overgraze the habitat, resulting in the loss of other species. Eventually, the population of deer will be controlled by their food supply, and when that runs out, they'll starve to death—a slower and often more distressing death than being killed by a wolf. Well, that's true for wolves and. And, and 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 deer but presumably the same thing is true for hunters or culling animals culling kangaroos in australia or or culling deer um uh the same argument is that it's better to be shot by a hunter than to starve to death what do you what how do you argue about that um well i agree with the fact that it's better to be shot by a hunter than starved to death the question is uh, would you have starved to death otherwise um but uh 
you know, let's say where I am now, I'm I'm in Princeton, and mm-hmm. there are deer around Princeton. Yeah. And the natural predators of those deer have been eliminated, whether it was wolves or um, First Nation humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the 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 main population control on the deer population is is um, starving to death in winter. So yeah, I don't really um, you know object to the deer being shot. I think they ought to be shot only by people who can really demonstrate that they are expert shots who can kill the deer instantly and have strong hunting ethics. Um, but in that case, um, for a limited number of deer to be shot so that there won't be starvation in the population in winter, uh, yeah, I can uh, I can understand that. Okay, good. I Okay, I want to just go through four or five sort of deep ethical questions, quick answer ones, though, which came to my mind. I think they're quick answer. Um, maybe three or four anyway. Um, you, I didn't realize you quoted Churchill. Maybe it was from the book, but I don't think so. Um, saying 50 years, something like the future in 50 years or something like that, where he said what a waste it is to, 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 you know, produce a whole animal just to have the, you know, the breast and legs. And, right. and, uh, and you argued if he was talking a hundred years hence, he might've been accurate. You're talking about lab produced meat. Which you think is a good thing? Um, I, I'm intrigued by the idea, but I'm also skeptical in the sense that one's thinking—if you're thinking about feeding a few hundred people, or a few thousand people, or a few million people—it's one thing. But if you're really thinking of replacing, say, factory farming with lab-produced meat, I'm assuming it's going to be an incredibly intense, energy-intensive, high-tech business that's not only going to be costly, but but very um, carbon intensive and it's also probably going to benefit only probably wealthy uh, countries and not and not poor countries so it sounds like a good idea but i'm skeptical that it will ultimately be a good idea what do you think about that i think those are entirely empirical questions and i agree that it would not be a good idea um if it remains uh, expensive and if it is uh energy intensive um but uh, the studies that I've seen, um, there was one country study, uh, show that it will be far lower in greenhouse gas emissions than um, meat production is. Uh, what is the real que- question is, can the price come down enough to actually replace yeah. factory farming? Uh, yeah. I don't think anybody knows that yet, but there are hundreds of millions of dollars in investment going into it. So, you know, maybe we'll find out or... Well, I certainly I have great faith in technology in the sense that what's expensive now mm-hmm. won't be. I mean, if, 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 any, if anything is an example from computer memory to anything else, um, yeah. the technology tends to always bring the price down. Um, but I just don't know. And it'll be intriguing to see. Of course, it'll, partly, it'll be all depend on, on the salesmanship, whether it's attractive to people to have meat that's been produced in the lab. Um, Here's another one that hits home in a sense. You talk, you don't talk about companion animals in the book at all. And I don't know your view on having companion animals. I know that you have the view that uh, you do say one thing, which is true. And I, and I know my brother happens to breed dogs. I've often hits me about this. Is it taking the little puppies away at eight weeks? So I couldn't do it, but, but, um, but you know, that you're concerned that, that causes suffering for the, for, for the mother. And that may be the case. 
But what about companion animals or, you know, if you go get a companion animal from a shelter or, or, or whatever, do you have any, any pets? I don't, but um, we did we did adopt a stray cat um, when our children were small and they wanted to have a companion animal. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any uh, in principle objections to companion animals, especially if they're uh, adopted. Well, you know, the interesting thing, you said cats. I was You're from Australia, and I was going to say Australians hate cats. Um, well, and, that's not true. Well, Australians I mean, they just, I always hear about how bad they are for the birds. And I, and we have a, well, we have a, we have a cat sleeping yeah. right next to me right now that right. came from Australia and with us. And All right. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think people who have cats should not let them out, at, uh, especially not at night and um, put, put bells on them because they, they are killers. There's no question about that. But what about the fact that, of course, the animals like cats are carnivorous? So you have to feed them meat of some sort. And, and yes, that was a big problem. Yeah. Um, it is very hard to, to I mean, I, I've been told that there are uh, foods that cats will eat and that will nourish them adequately. But um, I think it's it's difficult. So, uh, I, you know, I hope that such foods will become available. But um, but it's a problem with having when cats. you when you had a cat, you had a cat presumably when you were a vegetarian already. But you yes. fed the cat meat. But I assume you fed the cat meat. Uh, we did. Yeah, we fed. Uh, meat or fish uh, generally actually i did experiment i i, I got some I, I found some advertisement of some company that made a powder that was you were supposed to be able to add to tofu and it would be the cat would eat it and it would be nutritionally adequate but our cat did not like it i have to say yeah our cat yeah i mean you know unlike my dog my i have two dogs but the the, the um cat is doesn't you know knows very well what it likes and it doesn't like things other than meat and fish um, but, um, okay, here's a, maybe, I don't know if it's the deepest one, or the hardest one, the others are pretty simple perhaps, but I tried, I, I tried hard to think of a speciesist argument that might resonate with me. And you point out at the end of the book, maybe some, I'm not, this isn't the one that's going to stump you. So don't worry about it. But you said, maybe someday someone will come up with some argument that'll suggest it. But here's the argument that I can think of that suggests to me that human suffering is, is, is qualitatively different than animal suffering in a way that suggests that um, maybe equal consideration might be at least moderated. And that is the awareness that things could be different. The chickens that are, that are confined to these cages, which are reprehensible, have a life that is miserable in which they suffer. But they're, as far as I can imagine at this point, they're not aware that it could be any different, okay? If I did that to humans, they were th their suffering would be multiplied by a huge factor, by the fact that they're aware that they don't have to be confined, that they could be roaming, that they could have a better life. And therefore, um, that leads to a, in some sense, I would argue, is maybe an empirical argument that there maybe equal consideration should be modulated. What do you have to say about that? Uh, it, there is an empirical question uh, about what they experience, um, but I don't think it's a would lead to modulating the principle of equal consideration of interests. It would be lead to say humans have a greater interest in, let's say, not being confined or caged or uh, imprisoned than chickens do, because they have an awareness that things could be different. And let's say the chickens don't. I mean, in the case of laying hens, it's actually not clear that they don't because yeah. 
until they're ready, old enough to lay, they actually can walk around. They're yeah, still in- I'm, I'm just thinking one, not the laying hens, the one that sort of just made for meat. <clears throat> ah, right. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, then it would be a matter of saying it's worse for humans, but it's but it's that's saying humans have a different interest because the the distress that the chickens feel, let's say the pain they have in their legs because their bodies are too heavy for their immature leg bones. If, you know, and, and this wasn't my parallel, if uh, uh, Professor Webster said this is like somebody with arthritis, mm-hmm. up, well, okay, perhaps he should have said it's like it, except that they don't visualize something different and the person with arthritis remembers before they had arthritis. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it's worse. But there's still the physical pain. Yeah. If, you know, the, the physical pain you could suffer, even if you had had that kind of pain all your life or didn't remember that you'd not had it earlier. Um, and that would be true for the meat chickens as well, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still some pain. Um, so I think what you, what you might modulate is the extent to which the pain is the same as the pain a human would feel standing up with arthritis all day. Um, and that may be true, but I still don't think that the, pain of the chicken is so slight that um, it's going to justify us in preferring to have a meal of chicken rather than a meal of some oh, plant-based alternative. Okay, excellent. Okay, I just want to throw out. Okay, two, two, two last little bits, and then 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 what, you come out saying that bad things about wool, and I was shocked about that because having been in New Zealand and other places, I've seen I've seen sheep that haven't been sheared, they can't walk. Because they're like now so heavy that they can't even move, and you know they've been discovered, they've been lost. In what sense is I would have thought wool is a symbiotic, a perfect example of a symbiotic relationship where humans shear the sheep to make keep them comfortable and utilize the products of that for you know warmth and other things. Where what am I missing? You're missing the fact that this is a commercial production and people are doing it to make money. So, for example, you know, I was in Australia in the country just uh, um, back a, a, a month or two ago, um, and this is winter, right, Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there were newly shorn lambs out in the fields. Okay. Um, why? Because that way they get they shear them twice a year. They get more wool off them than if they waited until the weather warmed up before shearing them. Then they'll only get, be able to shear them once a year. So um, it's all profit maximization and uh, – I, I, you know, I doubt that it's any different in New Zealand than it is in Australia or Patagonia. Maybe I'm not sure. Um, okay, we, so the idea is that it's factory. It's not the in principle. It's in the practice, basically. Yes, that's right. In principle, you could have sheep having ideal idyllic conditions. You would shear them, and you would shear them gently. That doesn't really happen yeah. necessarily either. But you would shear them gently and take your time so that they didn't get hot, uh, cut or distressed. Yeah. Um, and and you would only share them at the time when they didn't need the wool. Okay, two last questions. One, a trivial one. In almost every area you talk about, the U.S. is behind Europe and the rest of the world. Why? Is it because of agribusiness? It's all, it just seems to be universal that when it comes to rights, these issues of, of, of humane treatment of, of animals, in particular, the U.S. seems to be behind Europe, Australia, well, the rest of the world. It's because of the corrupted United States political system. Um, agribusiness is one of the corrupting players, but um, it's the fact that money plays a bigger role in general in U.S. politics than it does either in Europe 
or Australia, and probably in Canada too, because I think parliamentary democracies generally work better than the US system. Uh, and my evidence for that is that whenever you can put a vote before the public, as in those states that have citizen-initiated referendum, like California, you get over 60% of Americans voting against factory farming. Um, and that's happened on a number of occasions. But if you try to get it through either, a, you know, the federal Congress or even like fail to get it through the California state legislature either, um, then the lobbyists take over and you don't get there. Okay. And, and, and that related to the question I didn't ask, which is the question of, 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 of uh, preference voting and the utilitarian purpose, of, which seems to me so much more rational way of voting, but we'll have to leave that to another, another discussion. I want, I, I do one of the, the, the one thing that I, I found profoundly I disagreed with was one sentence near the end of the book. Wow, what was it? 76. You talked about why you've, you don't think an appeal to sympathy and compassion alone will convince most people of the wrongness of speciesism. Um, even where other human beings are concerned, people are surprisingly adept at limiting their sympathies to those of their own nation or race. That I agree with. The next sentence shocked me. Almost everyone, however, is at least nominally prepared to listen to reason. I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> even with the word nominally. Yeah, nominally, even with the word nominally. Do you find listen. evidence, empirical evidence for that in the modern world? Well, I, I could only say that even the people, you know, I, I'm in the United States now, there's a lot of crazy people with bizarre conspiracy ideas, uh -huh. but, but they try to argue for their ideas. They, you know. But that's arguing is different than listening. <laughs> oh, I see. And, 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 and listening to reason is something that, I mean, I spend my whole, well, not my whole life, I spend a lot of my life writing and have to try and argue that reason should be the guide uh, for our behavior and for the, and the process in which we investigate the world. And, and I find that, um, that, uh, um, not that people, as far as I can see, listening to reason is something it ultimately in order to get, I hate to say it, it's, it goes back to, I guess it's Hume, right? That reason is the slave of passion that to get people to listen to reason. Is it Hume or I think it's Hume. I don't know. Yeah, but, but Hume is talking about reason in action, right? I know. Not I know. But in order to get people to listen to reason, I think you have to approach them there passionately as a teacher. It, you know, I, I don't expect my students were interested in what I have to say. I have to convince them to be interested in what I have to say. And I often I have to use passion as a way of doing that. So anyway. Okay. You're sort of, you're undermining your reason then if you think you are using passion. You, you don't think you can actually persuade them by reason. Well, I that. think it's a matter of assuming, I think in order to get people to listen, that's the key point. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is from a person who's often confused of never listening, often accused of never listening. I think you have to think about how what people hear versus what you're saying and how can you how can you be an effective communicator how can you and and often you have to think of a way that people will listen to what you're saying without listening to what they think you're saying and yeah. that's it and anyway it's an it's a it's a conundrum that as someone who's like me and you who spent a lot of their life trying to communicate uh in my case science and your case philosophy and often science it's it's an issue that we have to deal with all the time so Last question, which is what can be done? And, 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 and I think, um, you know, it, it, from an effective altruism point of view, um, um, you can say what was the most, there were two questions that your publisher sent me and among the whole list that I found interesting. Uh, 
rest were just kind of anyway uh what is the most successful example of animal welfare protest and particular what are the greatest sides what one step can we do today to further the goal of ending speciesism that what the heck let me ask that question yeah so the most successful examples have been the use of democratic channels particularly in the european union to uh, ban from the european union things that are still mainstream in the united states and some of them certainly in uh, many other countries uh, such as the the standard cage for laying hens the uh, individual stalls for uh, the breeding pigs that we talked about we didn't talk about veal calves but individual yeah, stalls yeah. for veal calves so i think that's the the most successful activities worldwide um what can we do well we can still work with uh, animal organizations i think they do make progress i think they are responsible for significant change uh look for the good ones um now the equivalent of the life you can save for global poverty and um, the equivalent of that for animals is animal charity evaluators so go to animalcharityevaluators.org find effective organizations join them and of course you can also contribute and you can be an example as richard keshen was to me by not eating animals yourself and i i what you didn't add it but i'll add it for you the other thing we can do is talk to each other and maybe and like you do uh, uh, you know in the extreme because you have a bigger soapbox as in some sense i do but uh, to be able to uh, try educate each other oh absolutely but, yeah. And, yeah and you know i guess i've always think that's ultimately the solution so you know, yeah, the only yeah, thing actually, tool you have I, is a hammer then everything looks like a nail but as an educator i I, yeah. you know, I think ultimately. No, but there was there was a survey recently I just saw posted which asked people what had led them to become a vegetarian, and number one was conversation with a friend. Yeah, yeah, conversation with a friend and a friend and 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 having the tools, and that's one of the reasons. You know, I I don't want to sound like I'm in advertising, but that's I mean that's the value of a book like this, and is that is that if you want to have useful empirical, if you don't want to just talk, but have empirical evidence as well as clear logic which is fine. You know, this is this is great because uh, you know, we 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 touched on the on the edges of when it comes to factory farming for example. But, you know, the examples in here are compelling and and I think for me that was a that was a large part of the impact on in in my changing my probably our discussions maybe early on in changing my diet. It took a while, it took a long while for me, but let me say that. But right. but uh, but I'm coming there. Anyway, I want to, uh, th- so I do want to thank you because when we talk about what we can do most, I think it's educating others and, and, and you do, you do as, as, as I often say, I know you like me are an atheist and like our my old friend, Steven Weinberg. And I always like to say that you're doing God's work <laughs> because, <laughs> but, but like thank you very me. much for the time and the personal <clears throat> suffering that you had to go through. Uh, in this, but I really enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. I, I, I didn't. I did enjoy it, even if I was starting to get hungry and tired. But yeah, um, I'm, I'm yeah, okay. Thank it. you so very much. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Larry. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.